What's happening, weirdos? This is Michael Schur, Mike Schur, who has a new book out right now, which is amazing. I'm not just saying that. I actually have two copies because I kept one at work and one at home. I didn't want to be away from it. That's how much I'm enjoying it. It's called How to Be Perfect. It is a very funny and informative uh, delve. I'm going to say delve into the world of uh, ethics, morality, and philosophy, but he does it in such a funny way, which is no surprise, uh, because he's Moe's. <laughs> I mean, he's Moe's on The Office, if you watch The Office. He's also uh, the co-creator of Parks and Rec. Uh, he also created The Good Place, speaking of morality. We talk a little bit about that in this episode. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine was a producer on Master of None. This is one of the funniest, smartest human beings I've talked to in a while. I, I really love this chat. And we really get into it quite quickly. So I really hope I keep saying really ethically. Is that OK that I keep saying I keep saying really so it doesn't matter. Only a couple things to plug up top. I'm super excited about all of them. March 25th is my only tour date. Uh, it's going to be at Largo here in Los Angeles. If you'd like to see me do stand up with a bunch of other people. Last time it was awesome. It was Megan Stalter. It was Rory Scovel. It, it, it was great. It was an amazing show. March 25th promises to also be amazing. Largo-LA.com for tickets to that. Hope to see some weirdos out at that show. Always means a lot. And if you like the show, uh, maybe try a Pete's Pick. It's a great way to show your support. And I couldn't be more excited about the newest Pete's Pick. This is the first first week we're running this, Is but you've heard me talk about this for months is the cold plunge. I am stoked to be working with the cold plunge and I couldn't be happier that today was the day we're running the first ad because I woke up and this keeps happening to me. I wake up sometimes and I'm just behind the eight ball. I, I can't get it right. Everything is pinched, everything is wrong, and everything irritates me. And there is nothing that I have found that will reverse that that do, do a complete 180 on your mood, on your outlook on life, and on your productivity, your creativity, your focus, everything that you need, then taking, it takes two minutes, a cold plunge. In the cold plunge. It is hands down the best part of my day. I start it, uh, I start every morning by taking a three minute cold plunge. Even if it's raining, I'll jump in the cold plunge. That's how much I love it. Uh, I've done. A, I did a lot of research into which is the best cold plunge, and the cold plunge at thecoldplunge.com, far and away, is the best one. So many of them look like coffins. They look frightening. They're not handsome. They're not beautiful. This is a modern, sleek, white tub with clean lines. It's like a nice accent to our backyard. Doesn't take up too much space. Doesn't cost a lot to maintain. It costs about a dollar a day to keep it really cold. I keep mine at 39 degrees, which is very cold. It's also important to me. I'm six foot six and I fit in this tub. In fact, the people that made it, they, one of the founders, John, is also six foot six. So he made it with tall people in mind. Nothing has improved every single area of my life quite like the cold plunge. Like I said, my health, it's incredible for your immunity. It's incredible for your metabolism. It speeds up your metabolism. But the main thing for me is my mood. It is an incredible mood stabilizer and a mood enhancer. It, it elevator. It just makes me feel this high, happy, tingly, joyful feeling in my head and my chest for literally... 
four to six hours. I've timed it. I'm like, when does that wear off? Usually when I'm coming home from work is when I'm noticing that the that the boost that I get from just two minutes in the tub, two to three minutes, can, can have on my mood. It is incredible. It's the only thing that I found that can turn around a bad day in three minutes. Like this morning. I woke up, a grouch. Got in the tub, got out. Listen to my voice now. I'm thrilled to be alive right now. And it is because I shocked my system and flooded it with so much life and vitality. It is like a forced meditation. It's the most present you'll be all day. And you get so much better at it so quickly. Meaning the first time I got in, I think I had it set to 60. And I was cold. I was cold. I was like, this this is this is intense. The second day I didn't I didn't have any of those symptoms. My body just jumped to the serene feeling. Usually it takes about 90 seconds to like stabilize and get used to it. But on the second day, we're looking at like 30, 45 seconds in, completely zen and still and calm. And then your brain starts producing those feel-good chemicals that, like I said, it's like it makes your blood reverse directions. If everything's not going your way, whoosh, three minutes in, you get out, do some sun salutations outside, because you can keep it outside, it's beautiful, and you start your day anew. It is a huge, huge, huge uh, improvement to my life. And now when I get in, I've been doing it for months now, I, it doesn't even register as cold. I know that sounds insane. It doesn't register as, as cold. It feels like life and vitality because my brain has made that association. Perfect way to start the day. And sometimes I do it twice a day. Sometimes I'll do it at night because it will improve my sleep and help me sort of wash off the day. I always say, let your body solve what mind can't. And the cold plunge is an excellent and very fast way to let the body solve what mind can't. So the plunge is incredible. They are now a sponsor of the podcast. I'm so thrilled to be working with them. Go to thecoldplunge.com. That's easy to remember, thecoldplunge.com, and enter promo code WEIRD at checkout, not only for your discount, but to show your support of this podcast, which means so much. That's thecoldplunge.com, promo code WEIRD at checkout to show your support of the podcast and to get a discount. Speaking of products that have absolutely changed my life, the Apollo Neuro, you guys. I am in love with my Apollo Neuro. I've probably turned more people on to the Apollo than any other product in my life because I wear it on my wrist and people are always asking me what it is. It's not a watch. I wear it on the inside of my, uh, my wrist like Johnny Depp might wear a watch, like an antique watch. I wear my Apollo Neuro. It is a wearable tech that helps your body recover from stress. It has settings to help you relax, to fall asleep, to fall back asleep. If you're sleep training your baby like I am, which is, you know, tricky. And I get back in bed and I push the button on my Apollo and it literally lulls me back to sleep after I lulled my daughter back to sleep. Focus which is the setting I keep it on when I'm doing stand-up. Social is a great, social and open is an incredible setting that helps you ease into social situations. I always say this, if the Apollo did one of the things that it does, it would be a great Pete's pick. If it helped you wake up in the morning, if it helped you socialize, if it helped you focus, if it helped you recover after a stressful situation, if it helped you meditate, if it helped you relax and unwind, and if it helped you fall asleep, if it did one of those things, it would be incredible, but it does all of those things. You sync it with the app on your phone, it uses Bluetooth, and you can pick your need. It's like finding the uh, the fuse box on your on your nervous system. It uses 
Uh, it's like a wearable hug using touch therapy to help you feel safe and in control. So there's a language to your nervous system, and the Apollo sort of hacks that language and speaks directly to it using these subperceptual vibrations on your wrist or on your ankle, delivering soothing, gentle vibrations that train your nervous system to recover and rebalance after stress. It actually trains the nervous system to cope with stress better over time, meaning the more you use it, the better it works. And it was developed by my friend, Dr. David Rabin, who is a uh, neuroscientist and a board-certified psychiatrist. The two of them were studying the impacts of chronic stress in humans for nearly 15 years. I always point out that this is not a woo-woo product. This is a hard science product. Apollo's effects on stress, sleep, cognitive performance, and recovery have been proven in multiple clinical trials and real-world studies. They have some new exciting research coming out specifically about cognitive performance, which I'm excited to share with you when it's published. And you can get 10% off and show your support of this podcast, which means so much to us, by going to apolloneuro.com slash weird. They also have some new colors, I'd like to point out. They have a, a snow color, which is like a cool white color. I have the uh, the black stealth color, which I like quite a bit. So 10% off at apolloneuro.com slash weird and improve your energy, improve your focus, improve your uh, re recovery time after a workout or a stressful meal with your parents, fall asleep faster, relax at night, focus, meditate. It is incredible. And so many weirdos have been trying it. And that makes me so happy because it's improved both Val and my life so much. And I'm glad to be getting the word out for Apollo. Last but not least, talking about how much we rely on devices, it's really easy with all of the tech that we have in our lives, it's really easy to overlook and forget about the hardware we are born with, like the ear. Same as fingerprints, no two ears are exactly alike, and that's why earbuds, if you're like me, probably cause you some discomfort or even physical pain after a while. Enter the Ultimate Ears Fits, true wireless, custom fit earbuds from Ultimate Ears, they are here to change all of that. When I say custom, I don't mean they come with like three little dots that you can put on the end. That's usually what custom means. I'm talking about these things come out with a moldable plastic on the end. You put it in your ear, you sync it to the app, and like a purple blue light warms up. Are you listening to this? This is crazy. It warms up the plastic and fills in your ear. So what happens at the end of like a minute, 60 seconds, you have a, a molded custom fit earbud that, if you're like me, absolutely no discomfort, even if you wear them making calls, uh, working out, listening to podcasts like this one for hours and hours and hours. It always sounds great and it always feels fantastic. You get a guaranteed perfect fit in 60 seconds. Ultimate Ears Fits will stay put when you're on the go. I wear them on the treadmill, no problem, and feel ultra ultra comfortable so you can wear them all day long without pain or discomfort. I mean, what are the chances that like the factory standard is going to fit you perfectly? No, two ears are the same. So you got to get it. It used to be you'd have to go in and, and get like a, a crazy consultation and pay a fortune, but now you can get this wonderful comfort with eight hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case all at home all super super easy if you try fits and don't love them as much as i do no worries ultimate ears offers a 30-day money-back guarantee plus you'll get free shipping free returns and a one-year warranty 
They, I also want to point out that they sound amazing. They're engineered to provide a full warm sound with a tight, punchy low end. And you can set custom EQ presets through the app as well. Play, pause, and answer calls with the built-in control. Or use the free app to set custom actions like voice assistant, volume adjustment, and more. So stop suffering. If you're listening to this podcast in earbuds that aren't Ultimate Ears fits, you don't know what you're missing, get some more comfort into your life and show your support of this podcast. Go to ue.com slash fits and use promo code weird. So use promo code weird at ue.com slash fits to get your pair of UE fits for just 199 bucks. That's ue.com slash fits promo code weird. All right, everybody. Hope to see you at Largo on March 25th. In the meantime, enjoy my chat with the wonderful Mike Schur. And be sure to check out his book. Be sure to check out his book. There you go, pun. Uh, How to Be Perfect, which is out now. Get into it. Hello. Oh, there he is. What a handsome man. (laughs) Oh, there he is. Doug Forsett. So nice to meet you, Doug. How are you, man? Who's Doug Forsett? Doug Forsett was a minor character in The Good Place who was the, I don't know if you ever saw the show, but he was the guy who had correctly, he was a stoner in Calgary in the 70s who had like did a bunch of mushrooms and then guessed what happens in the afterlife, like with 92% accuracy. And so all the like, all the angels and people in the afterlife were like, he was like a hero to them because he had been, he had gotten it right. He was the only one who got it right. Oh my God. I don't remember that. I'm happy to hear it again. It was, so we had a picture of him on the wall and it was, do you know Noah Garfinkel, the writer Noah Garfinkel? You may. I'm obsessed with Noah. I've known Noah for, I, I mean, we're not close. I've, I've just known him for 20 years, like from New York. <laughs> right. Yeah, so. so Noah, we were like, who who among our friends looks the most like a 70s Calgary stoner? And it was <laughs> Noah. So we had him, we called him. We're like, will you have your picture taken for the show? And he was like, sure. And then the photo was hanging in Ted Danson's office on the set for four years. And it was in like every shot. And so he became like, like a <laughs> famous person because of this dumb photo we made him take. So, yeah. <laughs> There's no one funnier. I I am, God, it's like saying you don't own a television, but I recently went off social media. Oh, congratulations. I know, right? Good for me. But the only thing I miss, it's a short list, is uh, Noah Garfinkel's Twitter. Yeah. I think I retweeted, it got to a point where my feed just was me retweeting him. Right, Maybe with a word like, why isn't this the most popular, famous person? (laughs) Why are you wasting your time with me? Just follow this person. Like he, he would just tweet to me. I only say that because he isn't as much of a phenomenon as he should be. Yeah. People were more like me. He would be. That's my point. Yeah. He, he just tweeted something. He does this thing where he will spend like three and a half hours creating something yeah. entirely pointless. It's it's really like performance art. You mean like, formal wombat? <laughs> Th- that was where he, That was you remember formal wombat? I do. Yeah, <laughs> it I was do. to the tune. I guess you can say tune of yelling Mortal Kombat. Right for those who haven't seen it, but he put a, a wombat in a tuxedo or something, and then said formal and, ju- and just played the song, and then it was formal wombat and stuff. Yes. And it must have taken, he just, he really reminds me of that pure place that I know, I I know without even knowing you that you go into that place Mm -hmm. where you're just like a, 
you're doing comedy. This sort of leads into your book a little bit, but you're doing comedy for its own sake. Like, yeah, I don't think Noah's like, this is going to get me on showbiz. He's just doing oh, it. Oh, couldn't care less. Like, couldn't care less. Yeah. And you he's, feel that. He really, he's a, he's like, do you remember the, the, um, the computer in Lost where like if you didn't enter a certain string of digits, the world would end like yeah. everything would blow up. Noah's brain is like that for whatever the jokes like if he it's like if he doesn't get the jokes out of his brain, he'll he'll have he'll die. He'll right. collapse and die. And so yes. he's literally just doing it because he has to like he's compelled he's green, to. He's a green font on black screen computer in a bunker <laughs> in an island that ended up being purgatory. Spoiler alert. That's right. I mean, that, yeah. that is that's so interesting, Mike, because, you know, it's a rainy day here in L.A. We're doing this over Zoom because literally everyone I know has COVID. Yeah, um, we're OK. I hope you're OK. I'm OK. Thank you for um, asking. Well, then come on over. <laughs> no, let's kidding. roll the dice baby <laughs> no val and i are like we keep like like our nanny's roommate had it and then we didn't get it and my parents were so we're like okay we've had enough like miracle close calls let's yeah. go back to just being safe so thanks for doing this over zoom my pleasure but i'm having this rainy day and for the past hour and a half i've been reading your i'm not just saying this wonderful <laughs> book thank you it is truly wonderful um, Ryan Holiday put us in touch. He said, and you know, he's, you know, philosopher majeure and he loves it. And I'm also just like supremely enjoying it. And the first thing I wrote down, uh, I don't want to put you in like book mode. It will keep it cash, but we're talking about Noah and his drive to do comedy. Mm-hmm. One of the things I struggle with in life and your, and your book is about ethics and virtue and, and, and why we do what we do and what makes a good person. Very, 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 very interesting stuff to pay it a very specific compliment. It's the sort of book you read it and you're like, why aren't I always reading this? Like, why aren't I always reading this? Like, yeah. what, what am I do? I've watched Mad Men seven <laughs> times. Like, what am I like when you listed Aristotle's uh, accomplishments and one third of his writings survived, presumably, and he wrote he still wrote so much about so many fascinating things. Yeah. And the politics joke totally worked, by the way. It 100 percent worked. (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. I can counted them. And I was like, (laughs) I can't believe it. Um, Such a great book joke. Um, You're just like, what am I doing? What are we all doing? What are we all fucking doing? And I think to use the language from your book, we are so many of us, myself included, we're eating nutter butters at a basketball game. Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're meeting needs and we're getting comfortable. And that's a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful thing to live in a time where so many more of us can meet our needs and feel comfortable or feel content. Sure. Like, Why aren't we talking about happiness? Why aren't we talking about virtue? Why aren't we talking about ethics? And you've done it. You've made a very dense topic, very funny and very fun to read. So congratulations. Thank you. Tie it all back. Noah and being a computer or your example of the bagpiper that just wants to bagpipe. Noah wants to do comedy or the world ends. I like to do stand up or I get very anxious. Like it's like an anxiety. Yeah. Reducing, stabilizing drug for me. Why do you continue to make shows and and what does that have to say about ethics and virtue and happiness okay so a couple things because you asked 40 questions i sure did and i apologize (laughs) 
I actually, I just go on mute and I leave. Like, I'm going to turn my video off. You just go out, go see, go see the matrix or something. And I'll just finish answering your questions. Val you and I have a matrix date tonight, which by Excellent. the way, I mean, not a bad movie to get into the mix. No. Um, so let me say a couple things. One is part of the reason why we're not doing this, whatever this is, whether it's reading about ethics or, uh, you know, exploring whatever intellectual pursuit Aristotle was exploring. It's because in Aristotle's time, there was nothing else to do, right? That there did, was no, my mind. They didn't have, mind. they, the mate, there was no matrix movies. There were no, there were no, there wasn't TV. There wasn't movies. There wasn't anything. They, they literally, the thing that they did was clutch each other by the arm and walk through a park and talk like that's yeah. That was the best form of entertainment yep. that you could. That was the highest, most enjoyable thing you could do is walk in a park. So I wonder if you ever got, grabbed a guy and you're like, this is a repeat. Like, I've, I've, <laughs> oh, I've guy, walked with this guy before. <laughs> he doesn't remember me. Or uh, you're like embarrassed that you streamed a whole guy in one day. <laughs> I streamed the whole thing. And then you're like, I like this guy. You create your own algorithm. Like, who are this guy's friends? Maybe if I hung out with this guy's friends, I would like, because I like this guy. Uh, and then if you're like me, you resent the algorithm for trying to please you too. Yeah, hard. you're like, hey, you don't know me. You don't know what I want. <laughs> yes, keep going. Um, so, okay, so that, I, I part of the project of writing this book a little bit has is to like let us off the hook because if you compare yourselves to the lives of like an 18th century Prussian philosopher, like, yeah, you're not as smart. You don't spend enough, the same amount of time thinking about this stuff, but we're living different lives. We live in a different society. It moves at a different rhythm. There are like, every time my, I feel my parents judging me a little bit for how much my kids look at screens, mm -hmm. you know, I just, I, they don't say it, but I can, I can feel there's like a little heat coming from them anytime they come to visit me. Cause my son is looking at TikTok or whatever. We were and I, little doms. My daughter was watching Spider-Man and we were talking to another family and I didn't feel it, but I projected it so hard that I felt it. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. it wasn't real, but whether it's it real, real or you're making it up, it's <laughs> there. It and the thing that I always want to say to people in my parents' generation is like, you didn't have, we didn't have iPads. I guarantee you, if we had had iPads when I was three and throwing a temper tantrum, you would have shoved it in my hand and made me watch Elmo or whatever, yeah, because right. yeah. it's just a, it's an, the world is different and it's difficult and probably a little bit pointless to compare directly the lives that we lead with the lives of people we're leading, you know, 2000 years ago, much less, you know, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever. So, I don't, this is not an indictment. Like I don't, I don't want this book to be like an indictment of the way that we are, because I feel like life is really hard for most people. You and I, I would say are among the two luckiest that we're two of the luckiest people on earth. Like if you made tiers, we're in tier one with, oh, yeah. with room to spare, like we're yeah. in tier one, right. In yeah, terms yeah. of just good fortune. So I don't want it to be an indictment. What I do want to say is that there are things that the world's smartest people have been thinking about for thousands and thousands of years. And what they've been thinking about is how can we be good people? What is it? What is valuable in life? What, like, how can we act and behave in ways that are productive and positive as opposed to destructive and negative? And the problem has been largely that those people wrote only for each other at some level. And as a result, their books and writings are dense and impenetrable and boring. 
And that's a shame. It's like I the, the image I kept having in my head as I got into this stuff was like, if like imagine that someone wrote a recipe for like chocolate cake that also made you smarter and you got into better shape when you ate it. Like you got ripped abs. Like it's a delicious chocolate cake that gave you ripped abs. But now imagine that the recipe was 700 pages pages long and written in German. Yeah. And so no one wanted to read it. And it's like, if you, if just more people could read this stuff, it would benefit the world. And so my, I'm trying to be the, the buffer, the, the membrane between this incredibly complex, dense stuff. And I'm trying to extract the ideas and just present them in a way that someone might actually find useful because nobody wants to read a critique of pure reason by Immanuel Kant because it's really hard to read and it's really boring. And I could only read it through intensive, long amounts of studying and also being helped by professionals and stuff. And so that if that if that's the barrier to entry, then no one's ever going to engage with it. So that's that's really what I'm trying to get across. I, I Malcolm Gladwell did the podcast a couple of weeks ago and he said something. I got it from his Larry King interview and he was like, I thought it was so badass. Larry King said, you've been criticized for being pop psychology. <laughs> and Malcolm Gladwell, who doesn't even seem aware that he's saying something kind of badass. He's just being honest. <laughs> he goes, yeah, I, I simplify it go read the journal, the New England Journal of Psychology. And he goes, see how far you get. And no one reacts. I'm like, that was like a mic drop. Like Malcolm Gladwell doesn't have a lot of like shotgun through the door, like in your face, extreme Doritos. Whipping his, whipping his Ray-Bans off with like a toothpick coming out of the side of his mouth. <laughs> Richard Gere leaning on a Corvette in 1991. Cool. Like you almost didn't hear him. He said it so faintly because that's yeah. how Richard Gere was cool. Yeah. Um, I have a whole theory on that. Oh, I'm really? Well, I, I, I've always wanted to do a stand-up bit called When Cool Was Cool, because in the 90s, being cool was cool. And it was Richard Gere leaning on a Corvette in a, in a, in a trench coat waiting for his date to come out. As you said, chewing on a toothpick, yep. looking over his Ray-Bans at night. And I've unpacked that a lot. One, cool is, is quiet, because you don't want to give away your position as, as, a, as a primate. Right. Like you're in the jungle. It's like, think of a nerd. A nerd is like, what's up, you guys? Like that's, <laughs> you're not, <laughs> you're not being helpful. So that's why Don Draper is very quiet and he has a low voice. It doesn't care. Right. It's about, it's a little bit about mystery or about yes. being cloaked in a shadow. When, so coach. Jeff yeah. Tweedy, lead singer of Wilco was on Parks and Rec uh, a couple of times and he was talking to Chris Pratt about rock and roll and Pratt was like, cause Pratt was playing music in the episode and he was like belting out this song. And then Tweedy was like, no, no, no. The essence of rock and roll is you, you come up to the mic and you barely, you barely acknowledge that the mic is even there. You just kind of, you keep it back, you hold it back. And yeah. that's what, that's what makes people lean in and lean forward and like, try to you know like, try to get at the essence of what you're doing you know you're killing it and how many i'm sure you've heard these stories too like uh johnny depp on set no one can hear him yeah people people acting against him in the scene three feet away are like good thing i know his lines because i have no idea what jack sparrow just said not just jack sparrow <laughs> but i have no idea what any of his characters because they're doing that like 
And sorry, I am excited today. I'm in a good mood, rainy day, reading your book. I'm feeling good. But I remember there was a stand-up show and it changed my life. It was in Chicago. It was in a bar. It was sponsored by The Onion. It was me and like Kumail and all these people. And we were young enough, naive enough, like 20, 24, that we thought that a show sponsored by The Onion meant we'd all get jobs at The Onion if we were sure. good. Sure. So it was like an important show. And it was rowdy. It was like a holiday party. And everybody went up. This is a self-serving story, but everybody was going up and was was swinging for the rafters. They were sure. yelling and they were freaking out. And I just was like, I'm going to whisper. And it was it was a huge, I didn't have like the best set in the world or anything, but like everybody shut the fuck up as soon as I Jeff Tweedy did. Yeah. And I think I got it from Bernie Mac too. Bernie Mac has a classic set where he's like, he kept saying, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers. I was like, I'm not going to dance for you motherfuckers. And right. Something like that without saying motherfucker because I was clean. I, Same thing. I mean, all of my favorite comedians, not all, many of my favorite comedians are in that mold. It's the Mitch Hedberg, Stephen Wright. It's they the kind of like, it, yeah, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm here on my terms. Like meet me here or don't, but I'm not, I'm not yeah. playing to the back of the room. I'm playing to like, I'm playing into the mic. I'm just going to play into the mic and then people can, can come on the ride if they want to, but like, I'm not going to stress or strain or yell or scream or whatever. And that's buddy. That's Richard Gere leaning on the Corvette. Totally. He's not even going to the door. He's like, I'm going on a date. Are you coming? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Julia Roberts has to like walk into the car. He's not going to, escort her he's like come or not i'm gonna have a great eggplant parmesan like that's that's <laughs> my night's gonna be killer with, with or without you i'm gonna be driving this corvette on mulholland in like <laughs> in like 30 minutes if you're in the car great if you're not it's still gonna be amazing i'm still gonna be looking down at both the valley and la proper from that's a corvette on mulholland it. like that's come come it. or don't man and that sort of leads. Well, I did ask you fifty questions. Did you want to get to any of the others? Because I, I now I forget all of them. What? Well, I, repeat them. I remember some of them, and I'm thinking of new ones as we speak. The 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 that is sort of a flourishing person. I love the distinction you make between yeah. happiness and flourishing. A flourishing person is not codependent. And yeah, you know, right? well, that okay. So right. So getting back to like Noah and the concept of comedy as a thing that you have to do, like part of so Aristotle's theory, if you don't know it, is basically that like you try to get the dead solid perfect amounts of all these different virtues, like generosity and courage and temperance and all this sort of stuff. There's all these different virtues, and the the key is like to have enough of them, but not too much of them. Right? You're constantly modulating. So his hmm. his description is like if you're too courageous. You'll go into battle and you'll just grab a gun and you'll say, like, follow me, assholes, and just charge <laughs> over the hill and take on the whole army yourself and you'll be shot and killed. You didn't have and enough it, temperance. Exactly. And if you're not, if you don't have enough courage, the second the battle starts, you'll desert your fellow soldier. You'll drop the gun and wet your pants and run away. Right. Mm -hmm. So the key is like in the middle somewhere, there's a perfect amount. And if we can find the perfect amount in all those virtues, then he's the, the sort of end goal is that we flourish, that we have that we that's. He uses a term in Greek called eudaimonia, which is either flourishing or happiness or something. I like flourishing because it sounds cool. It sounds like a, a, a more important goal. And I, I do think there's an aspect of flourishing, which is like like a, a, a comedian or a musician would describe it as like being in the pocket, right? Being like being perfectly comfortable in your, in whatever it is that you're doing, like 
having the confidence to to not worry too much about what other people are saying about you, but also not stressing or straining or 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 trying to push or or be too solicitous of other people's opinions. Like if you're just sort of in that zone where you're like, I really love what I'm doing. I'm doing it exactly the way I want to be doing it. That that in comedy, I will say, that is a that's a space where like it's really hard to some people might describe it as finding your voice. It's a place where I personally like it took me a while to, to find that spot. It, like uh, I started at SNL when I was 21. I was terrified. I didn't know what I was doing. I sucked at the job. I went to therapy. I talked about it with people. I like I I overcorrected. I spent way too much of my time thinking about the job and trying to outflank it. I was also trying to imitate people like Adam McKay was the head writer at the time and Tina Fey. And well, I was like, well, I'm just going to copy them, but I can't because I'm not them and I don't write like them. And I didn't come from a Chicago improv background. And so like all of my attempts to copy them and capitalize on their success were, were flops because I just wasn't authentically that person. And eventually through a combination of like hard work and therapy and a bunch of other stuff, I found my little pocket. I found my little voice and the stuff I wrote started to be better and started to be received better. And eventually I kind of figured out the job. That is such an important thing in the life of any artist, I think, is like you start off by just copying people, whoever the people are who influence you, whether you're a novelist or a poet or a painter or whatever. You start by just copying people you think are good. And then eventually you're like, wait a second, this doesn't feel right. I'm not I'm like, this isn't me. This is just my pale imitation of Cezanne or whoever you're mm-hmm. copying. And that moment where it clicks, where you finally are like, oh, here's where I feel comfortable and happy. Like, it's not exactly what Aristotle's talking about, but it's in the same family of things. It's like, if I'm going to flourish as an artist, as a comedian, you have to have de- spent so much time developing your thing, your voice, your you, the subjects that matter to you. And you can see it in comedians like, there are comedians who almost don't tell jokes, right? They just, they're just on stage being authentically themselves and it's hilarious. And like that to me, that's like a flourishing comedian. Like that's a, that's a comedian who has like gone like spent the time and the energy and the, and checking in with him or herself and getting to a point where it's just authentic and, and pure. And they're not concerned really with trying to please anyone. They're just doing the thing they love as well as it can be done by them. And I feel like that's a, such a joyous thing when you see it. It's such a wonderful thing when you can when you see some an artist of any kind kind of hitting that key spot in their life, you know? And I'm curious if you're like me in finding my voice, it was other people telling me, hey, dummy, that's your voice. Like, <laughs> yeah, of course. Over and over. Yes, you need that. I mean, that's very Aristotelian. That's very everybody needs teachers, right? Like you have to have people around you who are saying like this, not that, that, not this, like yeah. that. There are the, the feedback, the good thing about stand-up, I would imagine, I've never been a stand-up, but I would imagine that there is a certain amount of, of um, help that comes from the feedback, whether it's your friends, peers, other comedians you like, an audience, whatever, you do get instant feedback and it can help you kind of calibrate where you oh, need yeah. to go. 
what you do, I, I, I call uh, stand-up is like a treadmill. If you stop, you fall off. Like there's, <laughs> there's danger. And sure. writing is like running. You can stop and just call an Uber. Like it's easier to give up. <laughs> and it's easier to get lost just running too. Yeah. No, you don't get lost. <laughs> you're just, you're staying in one place. That really feels like stand-up to me. But when, I, I want to put this to you because I think even though you're not a stand-up, you're, you're a comedian and a, and a writer and a creator. I think it's, I'm really grateful as I was reading your book and as I'm talking to you, that my job creative endeavors are like little adventures, little hobbit-like adventures that require things like courage. So when you're talking about courage, I go, yeah, you don't want too much courage. I've had so many shows, Val, my wife knows, if I'm in the green room and I feel great, like I'm like manic and fantastic and just like, I see how, you ever get this way? Everything is funny. Mm -hmm. I see how everything (laughs) is funny. Mm -hmm. Computers are funny. Sure. Podcasts are funny. So funny. It's just everything (laughs) in that state. (laughs) Everything is funny. I go up and I have a bad set. You'll bomb, yeah. I already have it. I need to go in with a lack, like that would be temperance or humility. I need to go in maybe with with the concept of service, where I go like, remember, Pete, they might not feel how you feel. And, and the, the shows that I've had where I'm too confident, something might not be working. And it's just because I forgot that they're not having like a manic episode. And I need to remind them one key ingredient, like, oh, you know, when I say he, I meant my dad, right? And then all of a sudden, everyone's <laughs> right. with you. Right. But, but don't you feel that your life, when you were studying this stuff, this Ar- Aristotelic <laughs> stuff, <laughs> Did you go like, oh, shit, this does apply to my life? Like I have. Oh, yeah. All all the time. I mean, also to your point, like I heard you and Conan talking about this and it's totally right that that you can't the second you don't feel any kind of fear, uh, you're you're in trouble, I think. Mm -hmm. And, And a huge part of my life creatively has been like choosing to do things that were that were well, was like, well, I'm scared by this. So I think that means I should do it. That my origin story on this, by the way, is I, so when I was at SNL from 98 to 04, and it was like a real golden era of, um, for the cast, like the cast that we added in the time I was there, it was already like Molly Shannon and Will Ferrell and Anna Gasteyer and all these great people. But then we added like Fallon and Parnell and then like Seth Meyers and Polar came on and all these like, all these great people came on while I was there and they were, a lot of them were, were improvisational comedians. And so the UCB shows, like that was the gold, what I think of as the golden era of UCB shows, the, the, the Sunday night shows, the ASCAT shows I was in New thinking, York. I, where, I got to host or monologue one of those. And I was like, Amy Poehler was right behind me. I was so nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I was so, so nervous. Yeah. So it was like, it was, Horatio Sands, who's a world-class improviser and McKay and Seth Meyers and Polar and Faye and Rachel Dratch and all these people. And then Sadeka started doing, showing up, whatever. So I had never, I'd been to the show a million times. I'd never done the monologue and I was leaving New York. I was coming out to LA and Amy was like, you, sh- you got to do the monologue once. You got to do it once just for the experience. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm leaving now and uh, and this does feel like a rite of passage so i agreed to do the monologue so i show up and it happened to be a night where every one of them showed up it was everyone no, i it was everyone i, I worked like with I and and like and rob riggle and and rob hubel and paul Shear and uh just every 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 person i knew who was good at this was there 
And then, so I'm backstage and I'm already I, nervous. Sorry, Mike, can I interject? For people who don't know, the monologist, monologist, thank you. The monologist goes up and tells, gets a suggestion. So mm-hmm. you're supposed to improvise. A lot of them don't, and you can tell. Yeah, you're yeah. supposed <laughs> to improvise uh, based on the suggestion, what it makes you think of. And then what's worse is it's supposed to be funny. And what's worse is then the improvisers improvise based on what, based you've, on said. what you've said. Right. And what's worse is you're not done. You have to get up and do it two or three more times. Yes, they bring you out periodically over the show. It's You're supposed to talk for five to 10 minutes max at the beginning, but it's you're supposed to have... I, I, I told Amy... Get, tell me exactly what to do. And she was like, don't prepare anything. Be open hearted and open minded. Like get the suggestion. It's okay if you frump around and or like if it's the suggestion is couch. If you go like couch, what does couch make me think of? Well, it makes me think of this and that and this. She's like, if you if you you can meander out loud, it'll be fine. But she said like the keys were don't prepare anything because you can tell when people do. Yeah. And uh, and be specific. A lot of specific say, details. If you, yeah. if you didn't say yeah. that, I was going to say it. you <laughs> have to say IKEA. You have you can't right. say I got it at a big store. You have to say I got it at right. IKEA. Right, and and you have you to say like I went there with my cousin Wendy, who is five one and, and is an alcoholic and, and is an alcoholic. And, yes. yes, exactly. Yeah, you because that's that. that's the fodder for the improv, right? So I'm like, okay, so I so I follow the instructions. I had, I didn't prepare anything. And I was like, I'm just going to say what comes to mind. And I'm, and then I'm getting more and more nervous as all these legendary New York improvisers showing up. And then uh, around the corner into the, into the little crummy break room behind the old theater comes uh, Mike Myers. Mike oh, Myers God decided to, sh- to shut everybody's <laughs> yeah. dick up. And I was like, Hey, do you guys mind if I, if I play tonight? And I, and they were like, ah, oh, it sounds good. So, so I'm, <laughs> so I'm now I'm waiting back. I'm waiting like in the wings and Amy uh, goes out. Amy and Tina. No, I, Amy and maybe was Besser there. I can't remember. Someone else went out and they were like, let's introduce our performers for tonight. And they start introducing people. And it's just it's just hero after hero. And the crowd is going crazy. Tina comes out. Crowd goes bananas. You know, Sethka, Horatio, all these people. Crowd is like losing their minds because what they're seeing now, you never knew who was going to be there on a yeah, given night. Yeah. And what the crowd now sees is, oh, it's everybody. And then <laughs> Amy says... And also we have a special guest tonight, Mike Myers. And then Mike Myers comes out and the crowd loses their minds. Now, as this is happening, I am having what I can only describe as a fight or flight lizard brained instinct where I was like, I I was literally running through in my head, like, what happens if I leave? Right. Let's play this out. Like if I just flee, if I run away and what happens is like they'll call my name. No one will come out. The crowd will laugh nervously because they won't know if it's a bit or not. I will run. I'll be gone before they won't be able to catch me. I'll be gone. I can get a cab and just go to, you know, go to far Rockaway or something. And no one will ever go to um, the pit. (laughs) (laughs) You're just going to a show at the people's improv theater just to really kind of do a show. Just to really confuse them. So you left this show and went. So, uh, so, and then I was like, it'll be awkward. I, I, these are the thoughts I was having. It will be awkward on Monday. Like when I see them all, it will be really awkward. And I'll have to say, I maybe could lie and say there was an emergency or I could just say like, look, I panicked and I'm leaving the show anyway. So our friendships are obviously over and that's okay with me because I'm leaving. And by the time I had sort of played out the scenario, I heard them saying my name and I walked out and I just went uh, in, in, in the good way. I went blank. I like all of that stuff, all of that fear and anxiety 
that I had been feeling, which was, I was having, my heart was beating 160 beats a minute and my, my head was throbbing. And the second I got out there and I remembered like, I have, I have a job to do and the job requires no training or preparation. And so I got the suggestion and the suggestion was something, Oh, the suggestion was um, like uh, concrete or cinder block or something, something that reminded me of the apartment that my dad had moved into when he and my mom divorced. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, now I'm just talking about my dad. I can do that. I can talk about my dad and my parents' divorce and all that sort of stuff. And then I did, and it went totally fine. And by the way, I learned later, because the crowd was so hot, because Mike Myers was there and the whole, every great improv, everything I said killed. Like I, I was saying things that I wasn't thinking in my head were jokes and people were laughing yes. because they were just so revved up and so excited to be there. And it was a really good lesson because the fear helped me in some way the fear like as bad as it was by the time i was actually doing the thing it was like i had prepared for the worst because i'd been so fearful and then i was just like on stage uh in in front of a small crowd of people with my friends telling stories about my dad i can do that and it really helped me understand like the fear is just uh is your is your brain and your body's way of saying like there's something interesting happening here. Like there's something, there's something like that you can't entirely control and that's okay. It's good. It's a good, if you're always in a situation where you feel perfectly natural and comfortable, your life is going to get kind of boring. And yes. so I've, I've really like the things that I've done in my life that have all turned out the best are things that started with me saying, Ooh, I'm a little scared about this. And it's a good lesson. We were just talking about this. Okay. Lots, lots. Uh, for my experience is very similar to yours. As a stand-up, I felt even more pressure that everything I said had to be a bit. It was such a nightmare. It ended up <laughs> going quite well. Um, there's, I read this book called Existential Kink, which I recommend. It's very interesting. It's about getting in touch with the part of you that loves the things you hate and, mm. and, and kinking them, not sexually, but being like, if you look deep enough, Mike, don't you kind of love how annoying it is that your dad whatever this this or this and it's it's fun and there's a, a quote in it i don't know if it's the authors i don't think it is but it's fear is excitement without breath so like when you remember to like you're you're feeling the fear response that's sort of just like the wrapping on the excitement yeah i like that that's a good yeah. that's a good way of thinking of it that if you just start breathing and regulating yourself a little bit you're you're basically just excited and something's happening and something's you, happening you that's something is happening something happening that's interesting yeah yes and, and so much of life is nothing's happening <laughs> like, <laughs> something finally happens and and we're both like how do we get out of here but we Val and I talk a lot about it's a problem in my family i i have it in my blood a little bit which is this desire to avoid trouble Mm -hmm. Like you just don't want trouble. Right. It's one of the reasons why I'm so grateful that I'm a stand-up because it gives me trouble and it gives me suffering. I know that sounds strange, but it like gives me all of the grit and the strange colored textiles that make the mosaic so interesting. I wouldn't choose them. Like left to my own devices. Right. I'm one of those guys, the quarantine happens and I'm like, you mean we can cancel everything? <laughs> like I sort of like quietly love it. Yeah. Just that element of it. Yeah. And we were talking about certain family members of mine that have made it their life's goal to avoid anything that could be bad. So they do nothing. They do mm -hmm. very, very little. And we were just talking about that. And then I read your book and it seems applicable. It's like, I wrote it down while I was reading your book. Life isn't just 
being safe and life isn't just meeting your needs, nut, nut or butters at a basketball game. We right. talk a little bit about like the, the idea that it's the things that we don't want. This is also, sorry, this is also why I don't like the algorithm. I, I don't mean to shit on Hawkeye the series. I'm sure it's great, but it just came at a point in my life where I was like, please stop giving me what you know I want. Yeah. Stop it. I do like Hawkeye. I love Jeremy Renner. I'm not trying to put it down. If it had been the first thing that came out, I probably would have loved it. But after Loki and after all the other ones, I was like, stop it. Stop the peppermint fountain. I don't want any peppermint candy. Yeah, we're we're in a we're in a really scary place right now in Hollywood because the the flow, the directional flow of creativity has reversed Mm. for the entire history of Hollywood. People, humans had ideas and other humans said, I think this idea will strike a chord with people. And so we're going to produce this thing and we're going to put it out there and see if we're right. Now, the things that we have already made have been turned around and shot back at us like (laughs) we are like like it's sonar. And it's like, oh, we've identified a ping. And the ping is out there. And now all we have to do is, is find more things that are like the ping. And so you, instead of it being humans making decisions for other humans, it's now a machine has taken data and is making the decisions for them based on what other humans have previously made. That's a wow. terrible, that is a terrible situation because now every week, think about the, the shows that, and movies that we've talked about already, right? Like Richard Gere in a Corvette or Mad Men or whatever. Now, if, if you go in to pitch a show like that, instead of saying like, this show is about what it means to be cool. And like, here's my image for what's cool. We're going to teach people. That's what all of art forever has been, right? We're going to teach people what matters about what's, what, what, what's going on in Los Angeles in the eighties or what, what it was like to be at an ad firm in the sixties or whatever. Now, if that, if that pitch doesn't match line up with other stuff, that has been identified as valuable, that stuff will never get made. And, and so you won't even have the chance to put it out there and to see if it resonates with people because the machines have already determined what resonates with people and it accepts no substitutes. It doesn't, it's not interested in your weird ideas about like there is no avant-garde anymore because there can't be. Wow. And that that's my fear about all this stuff. And I and I do think that they that the it's not uh, it's not gone it's like global warming or something like it's not it's not totally too late but we're heading in the wrong direction i have a friend yeah. who works who's an executive and i was having a conversation with him about um about netflix and he said i think that what they do is actually immoral it's interesting in light of you bringing up this in relation to my book mm. but he was like i think it's actually immoral what they do because they don't care whether or not things are good. And this isn't conjecture. This is like Ted Sarando said this in an interview. He's like, we don't care if the shows are good. We care if people like them. And there's something, I I understand what my friend was saying. There's something a little bit immoral about saying we are the gatekeepers of content in the country and in the world. And we don't care whether the content is actually of a high quality. And what is the content? But this is my thing about social media. I would say your consciousness, meaning your experience of your life, but also just the phenomenon of awareness, is your life. And what you point that awareness at 
is your life. Right. That, I know you, that makes sense. And then one day it just made so much sense that I was like, I'm going to take Instagram off my phone. Cause it, it, of course you understand anyone understands this. I'm looking down at a fake phone in my hand. That's a stupid way to spend your life. Everyone knows that. Yeah. That is, that's like not up for debate. That's right. stupid. That's a stupid <laughs> way. Can I, I want to put it to you because I really would love to hear it through the lens of your mind. This is so preachy, but in your book, you write about how everybody thinks they're good. It's like everybody thinks they're a good driver. Right. Everybody thinks they're good. Everybody thinks they're smart. When Christians read the Bible, they never wonder, am I the Romans? They always <laughs> think they're one of the disciples. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, when really, like these are like homeless uh, rascals, like law, law-breaking ne'er-do-wells, barefoot in Galilee. Like they're freaks. Right. Of course, we're the Romans. Of course, we're the Romans. Um, so I'd love to see what this makes you think of. I think it's so funny in like a one flew over the cuckoo's nest situation, like how everyone thinks they're good. Everyone thinks that if they were handing out little paper cups with three pills in it, and when they saw the people taking the pills, they started acting insane, uh, that you would start putting them under your tongue. Right. right? And spitting them out. Everyone knows that. I said I would, I would not. I would not take the pills, but the, when you, when you make it not a pill, but like Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, again, I understand this is heavy handed. This is ham fisted, but I'm just saying we see that it's making society sort of nuts or you see Netflix uh, maybe putting out stuff that they know isn't good. This is all nutty stuff, but we're still sucking at the teeth. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a situation where just because it's not pills, it doesn't have the same taboo. It's still making people crazy and you are taking them like it's not yeah. it's not kind of happening it is happening what does that make it is mean? actually happening yes and <laughs> and look there are de- there are degrees here right because like mcdonald's mcdonald's hamburgers uh i'm a vegetarian you're a vegan i believe yeah. um so I, yeah I, I imagine it's been a while be- since you've had a mcdonald's hamburger uh, I I had a I've been a vegetarian for about a decade now, but, but maybe three years ago I was in a very dicey late night road trip situation with my kids, and the we had to stop. We it was ten o'clock at night. We had we hadn't eaten. We were we flight had been canceled. Another flight had been canceled. We were driving to another airport. Just one of those nightmare days when you have kids. <laughs> you look and up everything. I'm eating a hamburger. Like just the story <laughs> is stressful. It just appeared like, in your hand uh-huh. somehow. <laughs> I hate this story. So we, so we, I was like, we're just going to go to this McDonald's. I was starving. I hadn't had anything to eat in 12 hours. And I was like, okay, well, look, I'm, yes, I'm a vegetarian. Extenuating circumstances. I'm going to get a hamburger. I'm going to get a cheeseburger. I ate a McDonald's cheeseburger. It was the best fucking thing I've ever eaten in my life. (laughs) It was so, so it was a a rest stop middle of New York, upstate New York, (laughs) McDonald's hamburger. I had a cheeseburger rather cheeseburger and fries. I quite literally couldn't believe how good it tasted. And it struck something struck me that has struck me many times, which is like, of course, it's good. Some of the world's highest paid scientists have been perfecting this thing for decades and decades. And they have a million trillion billion data points of what people like and how to make it taste good. (laughs) Smoky, more smoky. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this chemical, one eye drop full of this chemical, one yes. eye drop full of this. And so like you don't like it's not that in and of itself is not like this isn't the end of the world that they're that Netflix is creating content that they know people want. 
that McDonald's creates food that has been engineered to taste good. It's that's that in and of itself is not the end of the world to me. The end of the world is if we stop being able to discern the difference between a McDonald's cheeseburger and like a a handcrafted gourmet dish that's been created by an expert in the field of mm-hmm. cooking who who is like I'm going to try some gastronomically interesting stuff here and see if it works. Does this right. taste good? Like right. what are what are what are flavors that could be mixed together in an interesting and new way and presented and if we can't te- if we don't see if there isn't first of all if there isn't room in the country for both of those things that's a problem and if we as a society can't tell the difference between those two things that's a problem but ideally it's a big world it's a big country there's 338 million people in this country there ought to be room for all of this stuff i'm worried what i'm worried about is the algorithmic revolution in entertainment in our phones in all sorts of stuff just like swarming over and crowding out everything else. And if there if there ends up being no room anywhere in our brains, in our days, in the number of hours in a day, in our entertainment, music, whatever, if there's no room for individual flourishes and accomplishments and ingenuity and experimentation, then I think we're we're dead. First of all, you're the first guest that whenever people bring up uh, Netflix or any company that's just trying to make us uh, give us exactly what we want. I'm usually the one that brings up McDonald's, like putting sugar in the French fries because, and we're back to my original question is is like my family members who avoid anything that they don't want. What brought it to mind and why we were talking about it was Val, who is much more adventurous uh, and just likes new things. I'm just, I'm like, like I go to the same places. I'm just a little bit boring, but I married Val and I have an override in my brain that goes, listen to Val. And right. I installed it and I'm very proud of that. But she goes, <laughs> I, it's raining. I go, where do you want to go uh, for breakfast? My parents just left town and we we're like, let's go have breakfast just us. And she's like, you want to go to Little Dom's? And I'm like, well, very hard to get something there as a vegan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also raining and it's also like COVID. And, but I was like, listen to Val. And we went and as it was raining, she told me why she wanted to go there. She was like, cause it feels Christmassy which right. it does. Right. It just feels like an East Coast Christmassy place. And I was feeling this like kind of euphoria coming from being in this very Christmassy place. Right. I ended up getting a piece of fish, sort of like your story. It was either that or the pancakes and the pancakes had all sorts of animal stuff in it too. So I was like, fuck it, just eat some goddamn fish. <laughs> and I shut my fucking mouth. You know what I mean? I didn't tell her there's nothing here for me. She she also knows. She, she's like, yeah, she, you're married. She knows that she knows she about knows. your dietary restrictions. <laughs> she knows. She also knows Petey will eat some fish and he doesn't care. He actually likes it. He's fine with it. So we and we sat outside. And before you knew it, I was like taking pictures of us under an awning and it's like dripping heavy streams of rain. My baby is like sliding a, a bottle across the wet table. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It wasn't raining on us, but the table was wet. And we were having a fucking memory. Yeah. And this is your gastronomic chef. This is the algorithm. This is people saying, can't we give them what they don't know they want? Right. And th- this is, I always say Maria Abramovich covered in her own feces screaming at you. That's a fake example, but like, like extreme art going like, why would I ask you what I should make? Right. 
I'm, I'm thinking about this all the time. I'm journaling my dreams. I'm sitting quietly in a cabin for three days. Like I'll, I'll tell you what's in our collective unconscious. Right. Right. right? I mean, this is, this is the problem. This is the essential problem here, right? Is that the, the job of art has always been to push all the boundaries. It's always been the point. And whether it's uh, Marcel Duchamp putting a urinal in a museum saying this is art or, or Picasso painting in cubism or, there, uh, one of my favorite stories, I'm sure I'm going to get all the details wrong and I apologize, but the first time that the Rite of Spring, the ballet, the Rite of Spring was produced in Paris, um, it was a, uh, it was like a, 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 like ballet was just like the most classical of all of the classical art forms, you know, and, but, and the Rite of Spring is very like, it's very, um, uh, the the music is very driving and it's very and the style of dancing is completely different from classical ballet and it was very just wildly new and it uh, when, when it premiered at the Paris Opera House I think uh, the reaction was so intense that there were riots on the streets <laughs> like <laughs> people rioted like imagine imagine living in a world where a ballet can lead to like the same riots that happen when the Lakers win the title you know like people overturning cars and burning things down. So that's always been the point. And the, the problem with the algorithm essentially is that it's like it rounds off all those sharp edges, right? It, it becomes like there's no way to create whatever it is, blue velvet or, or um, you know, or any of like Vim Vendors' movies or anything. There, there's, that doesn't happen anymore, the fear is, because the algorithm is determining whether how many people will watch it, what's the return on investment. It, it's become this hedge fundy kind of thing. And that's that's my fear. As long as there's still room in the world for um, for for that stuff, I, we're okay. Because look, there's also a side of me that says, because I'm like you, I'm risk averse, I'm conflict averse. I don't, I'm not super adventurous. Let's go, let's go ziplining, let's go spelunking, whatever. That's not me. And there are many times when I'll sit down and Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or any of these places will have created something that I very much enjoy, that I'm excited to watch. Like Adam McKay's movie, Don't Look Up, is on Netflix. And yeah. and, and the new Matrix movies. That, yeah, like the Station Eleven. Like these things are good. They're well made. Like they're being presented to us. We, there's a million options. Like it's not that it's, it's all bad by any stretch. There's so much good stuff on those services. It's just that if we continue in this direction, if it doesn't, if it doesn't settle, if there's no, if there's no settling point now, then where there still is room for David Lynch to make that new season of Twin Peaks, which was bananas and wonderful and (laughs) way too long and disturbing and weird. Like if, if there isn't room for him to do that, uh, and for people who are less famous than him to do whatever they want to do. Like, who aren't named David Lynch. To yeah, do. like as long as there's still room for people to do the weird stuff, everything will be fine. What I'm worried about is that the the direction we're moving in is it's crowding that stuff even further into the corners of the culture, which is concerning. And the, the, we'll go back to the immor- immorality of that. I, I think there is, again, because I'm risk adverse and in most ways, like I'm so glad stand-up, and comedy in general forces me into a much more diverse and interesting life than I ever would have had. So right. I'm very fortunate that my addiction or my compulsion or whatever you want to call it, I do want to get into the why of it. We were talking about no and all that. I do want to talk about that, but like it, it pushes me into like meeting needs, watching what you 
know you want to watch and watching it and eating what you know you want to eat and eating it while sitting in a chair that you know is the most comfortable chair Mm -hmm. isn't life. Could you speak a little bit maybe to it? I haven't gotten to it, but I imagine Aristotle or others have an understanding of the necessary suffering, things not going your way that leads to growth and also leads to happiness. Yeah, there's a so he doesn't talk about that stuff specifically, but a lot of the people who are Aristotle scholars write about that, that this, the sort of the, the, what, what his theory of virtue sort of implies for us, what it really means for us. And I talk about this woman, um, Julia Ennis, who is a professor, I think at Arizona, and she talks about how, what his theories really make us be is, is sort of pliable. It's like flexible because what he wants us to do all the time is act at the, do the best we can, and then immediately sort of check in, like, how did we do? Were we too courageous there? Were we not courageous enough? Like, mm-hmm. were we too uh, were we too modest? Were we not modest enough? Whatever it is, he wants the kind of constant check in, right? And so, so he what's wants that, you to be conscious and non resistant, basically? He, to use yes, terms. He, exactly. And yeah. and he wants you to and he wants you to be mindful in Buddhist terms, and he wants you to be kind of um, uh, doing the work all the time, just doing the work. Don't ever act without thinking about what the act means or wh- how you how you executed whatever you were executing. Mm-hmm. And so, what this woman Juliana says is like the, essentially what what this leads to is a person who has a lot of knowledge about how you behave, but also is flexible and adaptive enough to be able to change course when new information arises. So that that was really meaningful to me because I am a person who I am a, a in addition to being risk averse and I don't know if you're like this I'm a total creature of habit like I I have like you said I have a certain restaurant I really like I know I know that if I go there I won't screw up and I won't be sad about what I ordered I have music that I listen to all the time, I mean, all that sort of stuff. Listen right? to this, and she's yelling. <laughs> she listens to the show on an old timey radio, so she's yelling at the radio. That, yes, a hundred percent. Right, and and I think that part of whether you're like us, you and me, or even if you're a more adventurous person, it's just sort of the nature of being alive that you calcify in various ways over the course of your life. Like I talk in the book about how. When I was young, I was super into music. I used to go see a lot of live music. I used to buy massive amounts of music in every genre, classical and and blues and rock and like weird EDM stuff sometimes like uh, pre EDM revolution like this is way back in the, you know, 90s and early 2000s. I just bought a ton of music all the time. I listened to alt country, all this all this stuff and I would and I loved in a weird way the experience of hearing like someone would say, I would say like, give me recommendations to my friends all the time. And I would go out and buy them. And if I hated them, I still was so happy that I had done it because I was like, okay, now I have information about this genre of music. And I know I don't like this kind of thing or whatever. Then got married 2005, had kids 2008, 2010. And there is nothing like having kids that to like suck you out of the culture you're just all of all of that attention all of that let's go see this band let's buy this new album let's see this concert whatever that stuff all goes to your kids and so as a result my taste in music or my understanding of music was frozen in amber a long time ago and so now when i get into my car i am like what do i want to listen to do i want to roll the dice and and turn on a radio station or 
or maybe you know hit hit shuffle on some Apple Music station. No, I want to listen to Tom Petty again for the ten billionth time. I want to listen to the Wildflowers by Tom Petty. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. That is one of my go tos. That record. Yeah, I listen of to course. It all the time. We're you and I are roughly the same age. We're both from the Northeast. Like yeah, yeah we're yeah. gonna listen to Tom Petty. And so what? But so with this woman, Julia Annis, and what she was writing was like, oh right, I've blown it in a way, because I am not flexible and innovative in my responses toward things like new music. I'm, I'm hardened. I'm like a, I'm a rigid flagpole that is not, that is like barely bends in the, in the, in a hurricane gale force wind, because I'm just like, this is who I am and I'm not going to change. And what she's saying, not just, she's not speaking specifically about things like how much cool new music do you listen to? She's just talking about your life. What she's saying is if you are constantly working on yourself and checking in and kind of doing the, doing the labor of making sure that how you're behaving or what you're interested in or what your life is like is, is, uh, is if you're open and pliable, you become a person who has all the information that you have, but also is open to receiving new information. And you just become a more interesting person and, and, and a more flourishing, flourishing person. That's yeah. flourishing. I was going to say that is a great definition of flourishing. And I, I slept almost, well, I, I was in bed for 12 hours, but we have a dumb smart bed. And it told me I was only asleep for nine and a half, but I'll take it. <laughs> and I haven't slept that long in a very long time. And, and having kids yourself, I woke up and I was like, I think everything is okay. Like, I just, like, every, like everything was great. We're going to get through COVID-19 together. Yeah, everybody. I, I, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> no problem whatsoever. You know, I'm going to call Mike. We're going to do it in person. It's going to be okay. Um, but like, you know, I forget where I was going with that specifically, but I was going to say there's neurologically a component to what you're saying is when you were young and buying alt country records and all that sort of stuff, you just had more living neurons. Like, yeah. and, and now you have fewer, but, and the ones that survived are the ones that listened to Tom Petty's wildflowers. So that's like what's going on. Yeah. But like staying like life, if we can anthropomorphize it and just call it a force, like the force of life loves novelty, mm-hmm. like the arc of, of the universe, like life itself seems to just be like pushing forward into new things, even new bad things, even new viruses. It's doing new and it's moving and it's adapting and it's changing. And we can take a cue from this environment that we find ourselves in and be like, I am most alive when I am staying. I don't want to grow just daisies. I want white tulips. I want sunflowers, like that sort of thing. Right. And what bothers me, my parents were just here and I love them and they're doing their best, but like talk about a repeat in the philosophical walk. <laughs> like so many dinners I have with my parents. I'm like, I've seen this one before. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Parents are good for that. And that's their parents are basically a harbinger of what, what's to come. <laughs> if you don't remain like pliable and, and flexible, right? That's because it. like we've all, we've heard all of our parents' stories a hundred million times. If a subject is thrown out, onto the floor for discussion, we can predict with 99.9% accuracy, not only what our parents' positions will be, but how they're going to relate them, how they're going to say what, what literally words they're going to say about whatever it is that we're talking about. Yeah. Like if someone mentions Mitch McConnell around my mom, I can, I can be a ventriloquist act for her where I could stand in front of her and mouth the words as she's saying them. So yes, that, that it's, when you start thinking of it like that and you, and then if, when, if you're fortunate enough to have parents who were alive and kids 
who are uh, uh, old enough to sort of know something about the world, you're really you're looking at the future and the and the, the past, past yeah. and and you and then the natural conclusion is and by and kids by the way are just vacuum cleaners, music, TV shows, movies like this, that like their friends, their video games, whatever, and you really when you realize that your kids are the future, your parents are the past, what you realize is like, I am the present, like me at this age, I'm 46. I'm, I have, I'm right on the knife's edge where I'm where the present and the past converge. (laughs) And so I have choices here. I can either go in this direction or that direction. And I think that some of, some of like heading towards your parents is inevitable. There's no way to avoid it. It's just, we're not going to, with very few exceptions, unless you're like Richard Branson, we're not going to be like, Hey, let's try jet skiing when we're like 78 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in your day-to-day life, you can choose or you can aim at remaining more pliable, more flexible, more rubbery in the way that you go about life on earth than you than you might otherwise be. And that and it's it's not it's it's not easy, but it's not impossible. You know, yeah. you just have to allow for to like try things and to to remain open to to getting better information than whatever information you have and, and try to do your best. And that's, that's sort of what I'm getting at with that stuff in the book. It's like, just, you're not going to nail it. You're not gonna be perfect. Just try your, just try a little better than you've been trying. That's how the book starts with that lovely Maya Angelou quote. And and there's all these things about like, you're not going to be perfect, but like, I think Moby said that to me, but it's not his quote. <laughs> Something Moby said to me, uh, what a, what a loon I've become. But he said, uh, because I asked him about veganism. I was like, what happens if you're Mike Sheeran and you eat a, a cheeseburger on that night? He's like, don't don't uh, give up the good in pursuit of perfection or right. something like that. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, perfect is the enemy of the good is the way I usually hear that, right? That's like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, and that's, and you, once you know, once that's a philosophy that you understand and have internalized, you see it everywhere. Like yeah. so much of the stuff I wrote about well, I wrote the, about it's the introduction of their book. Yeah, it's it's because I wrote about it because in many cases, what it's like once you see this, you see it everywhere. And like right now, the debate about Biden's uh, Build Back Better Act, right? It's like it's like, well, I can't get on the same page as uh, if I'm Joe Manchin. It's like I can't get on the same page as this bill on this one issue. So we're throwing out two trillion dollars worth of stuff that will help the most vulnerable and and needy people in the entire country. Well, that's ridiculous. Like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like what get on. Hey guys, get back into a room, solve that problem and, and let the other really good stuff in that bill get out into the country to help people like that. You, you start to see these, these um, philosophies everywhere you look like, which Mm -hmm. is part of the joy for me of reading philosophy has been like, Oh, Oh my God. Like when I read about this one thing, now I see 10,000 examples of that one thing everywhere. And I just never had a name for it. And you realize you're, you are, even though we started by saying you're not living in the same world as Aristotle, you are living in the same world as Aristotle. Yeah. Yes. It's not fundamentally that different in terms of there's a bunch of people in a certain place, sharing a planet, sharing a limited amount of resources and money and capital, trying to get along, trying to have governments and businesses and like, the the basics the building blocks are the same it's it's there's no ipads there were no ipads back then that's the main difference you know what's interesting about the word flourishing is it implies change and so when we're talking about calcifying or or being locked in amber or when i when i think about my parents people who listen to this podcast know i always say when i come back from boston 
I literally make a reminder on my iPhone that says, don't forget you could be wrong. Because the thing that I see mostly with my dad is like, he's just forgotten that he might be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So like, but then what happens, and this is an Eckhart Tolle thing is I really see in people like, like my dad and, and sometimes my dad, but people like my dad, this blurring of the line of what you believe and who you are. And I wonder if you could talk about, it seems to me like flourishing is recognizing that you are way more than your habits, your patterns, your beliefs, your thought, you know, because if you're open to changing, you've sort of, without labeling it in a spiritual way, you've recognized that you are just sort of potential. You're made of potential instead of being made of the past. Yeah. I I mean, there's, you're, you're drifting a little bit into like concepts of the self, which isn't strictly speaking sort of ethics, but but it, these things, like everything in philosophy, they're all sort of related. Like there is a sense of with all of the people who talk about ethics and and what it means to be a good person. And there are different schools of thought, right? Some people say it's purely based on action. Like are your do your actions meet the correct intentions? Some people say it's about the impact of your actions on other people. If you create more good than bad, it's a good action. If you create more bad than good, it's a bad action, whatever. But all of them are looking at the future. They're all about what happens next. It's not, it, you know, Kant wants you, whenever you encounter any decision, to essentially press pause on your life, formulate a maxima or a rule that you could will to become a universal rule that everybody would have to follow, acknowledge that following that rule is your, is your sole duty, and then follow that rule. So it's all about like, before I do anything, what's going to happen next, right? And, and and is it bad or good? And the utilitarians are take a different approach, which is to say, hey, what should I do here? Well, doing this thing will lead to this result and doing this thing will lead to this result. And result A creates more good than result B. So I'm going to do result A. Like it's, it's all, this it's is, the, should I stay or should I go? If I go, there will be trouble. If I say it will be double. It will be double. So go. So go. Yeah. That, it's, you answered your own question. <laughs> yeah. ah, I always go, you need to go, buddy. Why are you yeah. singing the song? Get out of here. Right. And like, and you can, if you're whatever, whichever school of thought you're following, like there are people who are pure utilitarians and they think Kant is a, is an uptight rule following dork. And there's people who follow Kant. I think the utilitarians are completely have the wrong value system. And there's Aristotelians who were like, Hey, let's not create rules for action. Let's just try to be good people. And then we'll do good things. But it's all about improvement. It's not like it's a forget about what happened in the past. It doesn't matter. Like it's let's, let's focus on how we can improve the results in the future. So they all have these sort of optimistic outlooks. They're all suggesting that, if we buy into whatever system they're peddling, we can get better. The world can always get better. We can get better. Our actions can get better. The world can get better. And so I find that really hopeful because there's, it's none of them are saying like, look, we're screwed. (laughs) It's like, there's no hope. Uh, Just try to minimize uh, your life to the point where you don't affect anyone or, or, you know, don't involve anyone else in your terrible decisions and just try hide in a corner. They're all saying like, no, 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 you fo- follow this system and you and the world can get better. And that's a really hopeful idea, I think. And it's something that at times is hard for me. It's hard for anyone, I think, to truly 
believe because we get into situations all the time with COVID or with voting or whatever, where it's like, I'm only one person. Like, what is like, what, what kind of uh, effect can I really have on the world? Like people say in California, you should use less water when you water your lawn. And then you read that like agriculture in this state is like like 98% of the water. I could show you a script that I wrote where a guy explains that he should be able to water his lawn because one egg takes 52 gallons of water to make. (laughs) Right. He's a vegan. So because it's pulled right from if I was going to be that way, I would be like, I should be able to water my lawn because I don't eat beef. Right. Like, Yes. What do you do? Keep going. I'm just saying, like, you're talking to your reflection. I don't even know. If this is, I don't know if anything's you, happening. You right should now. have written this book is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I should be interviewing I, you. I'm glad you did. I, I, I'm seeing the effort you put in. But keep going. Yes, well, just we get it's, it's very hard sometimes to care, to give a shit one way or the other whether uh, what you're doing is bad or good because you're like, this this planet's enormous. And there's people, you read stories all the time about people who not only aren't trying to be good, but are flaunting how bad they are. Like they're just bragging about how, what they got away with or how much, uh, how much extra bad they've put into the world. Like you read about, you know, the uh, people just flying around the world on private jets for no reason. And you know, like someone, I, I read a story, I forget what actor it was, but somebody, was it Johnny Depp? Was it part of his, Johnny <laughs> Depp's- uh, so quiet, we couldn't tell <laughs> what he was saying, but yes. <laughs> it was someone who like was shooting a movie somewhere and only wanted, like really wanted a meal from his favorite restaurant, like in New York and like sent his private jet from, you know, Croatia or whatever to like oh, pick up dinner oh. in New York and fly it back. And like the amount of carbon that that put into the atmosphere is probably like six months of you or me like choosing to like walk to the mailbox instead of drive or whatever these tiny decisions are that we make on a day-to-day basis. And so it's very tempting to say like, well, what's the point of any of this? Like like the stuff that needs to change has to change on such a massive institutional level that me making my own little stupid decisions, even when like I said, you and I are lucky people. We have like good sized houses and we have like, a, I have a yard and I, I have two cars. My wife and I both have a car. And like that uh, immediately puts us in the one thousandth of 1% of, of like good fortune people in the universe. But even th- so, wh- how big is our impact really going to be? And then you realize, well, this isn't just about me, it's about all of us. If we all did, whatever it is that we're suggesting we do. If everybody tried a little harder, if we moneyball this shit, basically, like, do you remember the story of Moneyball? Like, I'm money- obsessed with Moneyball. So Moneyball, if you haven't seen it, is like this team with no money loses their- I just their- told you I love Honeyball. <laughs> I I, I'm talking to the about. audience. I, I know, it was, it was a bit, it was a bit. <laughs> Mike, I just told you I'm obsessed with it. You don't have to explain it. Keep Let going. me just real quick read you the script of Moneyball, Pete, because I don't <laughs> think we open on- <laughs> Exterior Oakland A's Coliseum. Uh, so they lose a star player. They have no money. And they say like, okay, instead of finding one guy who is this good, we're going to replace eight guys on our team with eight guys who were like 4% better than they used to be. And then combined, they will have the power of replacing this one guy. Everybody thought he was nuts. He wasn't nuts. The team ended up competing. And everybody does it. Yeah. Yes. And now everybody does it. It's right. He's lost. He's he foolishly allowed Michael Lewis to interview him 
Billy Bean did and then gave <laughs> up all the secrets and now uh, oh is my being God. copied. What if he, but they, people would have noticed. It's like when you put out a, a new food or something, like we can analyze it now. If you're selling an amazing pancake, science can buy that pancake and analyze and it. Someone, like, they'll put it in a secret. centrifuge and like just yes. <laughs> separate the egg from the wheat or whatever. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Which sounded like an Old Testament verse. <laughs> put the pancake and separate <laughs> the egg from the wheat. Yes. Uh, so the point of all this is, if we as a society can just moneyball this stuff, if we can all be 4% better than we were yesterday about anything, about water conservation or using electricity instead of gas or whatever, mm. if we're all 4% better, then a lot of amazing stuff will happen. And, mm. and so all you can really control is your own behavior. And maybe you can influence the behavior of the people around you. But Everyone should try to do that. Everybody should try to make themselves 4% better than they were yesterday and help other people with new ideas to make themselves 4% better. And eventually we'll crawl kicking and screaming into a brighter future. Mm. That's, that's really the, that's the idea here is like, you can't, you're not going to solve any of these problems yourself. doesn't matter how influential you are. And I mean, if, unless you're literally Jeff Bezos and you could with the flick of a pen, like solve homelessness. Like I, I always see these things that are like, you could solve homelessness for $50 billion or something. Like if with $50 billion, we could solve the problem of homelessness in America. So there's a couple people who could do that, right? Mm-hmm. Elon Musk could do that. And Jeff Bezos could do that. And there's a couple other guys. But if you're not one of those guys, then all you can really do is like, ask yourself the question all the time, is there something I could be doing that's like a little better than what I was doing? Just a little better. And if the answer is yes, then you should do it if you can. And that, like that, it's when you boil all of these ideas down to that level, it starts to seem silly not to follow them or not to care because no one is asking you to run for president and pass laws in Congress and and single-handedly replace all of the water-led pipes in, in Flint, Michigan. All that is being asked of you as like a citizen and a human being on earth is to be a little better than you were yesterday. That's it. And if you can't hack that, then come on, what are we doing? And by the way, different people can accomplish that at different levels, right? You or I can accomplish that a lot easier than someone who's down on his or her luck, has a difficult life, a more difficult life than we have as a a single dad with three kids whose, whose wife is ill and in a hospital and has holding down four jobs, like we're going to ask less of that person than is being asked of us for obvious reasons. So like our ability to make ourselves a little bit better scales up or down, depending on what our life circumstances are. That's only fair. Like it's like, in my mind, it's like a progressive tax, but for morality, it's like you and I should, should be held to a higher standard in terms of the ethics of our behavior than most of the people in the country, because you and I can bear that burden more. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can do more without it negatively affecting our lives. Mm-hmm. So we should be giving more money to charity and we should be working harder to make our homes you know, use less energy and all that sort of stuff that takes time and energy and money and sacrifice. We should be doing more than the average person and a lot more than people who can't afford to do anything or living paycheck to paycheck and so on. Mm-hmm. But regardless, all anyone really has to do to make things get better is make themselves a little bit better than they were yesterday. That's really all it is. And when you put it like that, it seems accomplishable. It seems achievable in a way that gives me, 
I'm a naturally fairly pessimistic person. Um, and, and it gives that's what gives me hope is if, is if we all, if we moneyball this, if we all just work on ourselves a little tiny bit, then the massive effect will be, will be massive. It's the perfect uh, and the good thing again. And it's the starfish story on the beach. You know what I mean? It's like, just do one thing for one starfish on one beach, even right. though you know you can't help all the starfish. But if everybody's doing that, then all the starfish go back in the ocean. Right. Why is there a guy in that story that's not just picking up a starfish and helping? <laughs> <laughs> Why is there like a narrator that's like, and I said to him, you can't save them all. Why are you telling, why are you talking to this man? He's saving starfishes. But I mean, it really depends on what, altitude we want to fly at you know like giving money to a homeless person does help potentially that homeless person i i know you could unpack that whether or not they might do something harmful to themselves with the money but that doesn't solve homelessness but it does help that person and, and yeah that's like a tiny that's a i know that's a, kind of a trite I, I regret picking such a trite example well but if you have that if if that example pops into your brain there's another step you can take very simply, which is, okay, if I have the instinct to help people who are uh, uh, unhoused, there's got to be a better way than just handing out cash potentially. And so you go home and you Google ways to help the unhoused in Los Angeles and you see the LA Regional Food Bank, for example, which is a highly effective organization that has thousands of volunteers. <laughs> this, is, this is when you find out I'm evil. Edit that out. I don't or recall they, the LA food bank paying for this. You, you run a competing food bank that's for profit, and you don't want you don't want to advertise the other ones. Yes, that's right. So, and you go, oh well, the, here I'll give I'll give fifty dollars to this to the LA Regional Food Bank, and that will provide several meals that will go to people who need food. Like, yeah. So it's it's the in, the instinct to do that is the important thing. That's if you right. have the instinct to do that, then there's only one more step, which is Google like best ways to do thing X, and then you'll find a better way to do it. And there are whole there are whole charitable organizations in this modern day. You want to talk about what a good algorithm is or a good, the good age of computerized technology. There are whole organizations that spend all of their time doing really detailed calculations about what the best charities are. Where does your buck go the furthest? How can you help? If you have a limited amount of money to give, how, what is the place you can give the money that this will is, maximize the value of your donation? You know, this is super weird. While you're look, I'm listening, and five. <laughs> let's, let's get one thing let's clear. Get, let's get one thing clear. No, like I, I actually like I hate when people aren't listening. I know I interrupt a lot, and I, I concede that, or I talk a lot, or however you want to frame that. But I do try to listen, so I was listening, and five percent of me was going. I should mention givewell.org, which is exactly what you're saying. Exactly right. Which I just found out about. My friend Mike Kaplan emailed me. He's such a beautiful man. And he just emailed me. He's like, these are the things I'm doing and I'm just sending love. And at the end, he was like, I also just found givewell.org. And I was like, "There's it's it's an organization that figures out where mm-hmm. the money is needed and, and yep. they figure out who to give it to. And it's really cool. Yeah, that's really Peter cool. Singer's uh, group. So Peter Singer is one of the philosophers I talk about and mm. in the book, and he's a utilitarian. And he was like, listen, his thing is like, if you want to give, you could give a hundred bucks to LACMA, right? Or to to the New York Symphony Orchestra. Um, and that's fine. But like, they have a lot of money and it's hard to justify giving money to an art museum 
in a wealthy Western city, which will probably be okay without your hundred bucks, and not to an organization that buys malaria and mosquito nets for kids who have to sleep outside in places where mosquitoes give you malaria and kill you because a hundred bucks could buy five of those nets and then five children will get to stay alive. That's it. And, and when you, it's a little bit harsh, I think his, his approach, it's a little bit dicey because for some people, LACMA is a very important thing in their lives and they want to support a museum and it's not bad to give money to a museum, but his thing is like, if you really want to just maximize the value of what you're getting for your donation, here are every year they update their list. They do rigorous analyses. It's like, this the here's exactly what you will get out of the money that you give and they're not sexy charities right it's not the american red cross or even things like doctors without borders these things that we've all heard of who do great work they're they're organizations that like deworm rivers in malawi because yeah. the, there's no way to do that and the worms in malawi give in, in kids and and people intestinal diseases that ruin their lives so you're not you're not getting it's not like flashy but yeah. it's but you also have this knowledge that like that a group of people has spent a lot of time figuring out like this is a really good way to spend your money to yes. help other people live better lives and if you're me you get the pleasure of going i'm not a rube like, <laughs> like by going there you're like you got to get up early in the morning to get lacma to get me money or whatever it it does have that that benefit yeah. i'm going to uh you've given so much this is one of those great episodes where i'm like you could say you got to go right now and it was already one of my favorite episodes and thank you. I was warned about how long okay. these episodes are and I have blocked out time. I am good, man. When okay, you good. cut me off when you want to cut me off. Well, I will, but um, I appreciate that. I don't, I'm not going to be able to defend this position. So please don't think of me as, as the, as the, uh, you know, the attorney for it, but I do a lot of like spiritual reading and mystical reading and all that sort of stuff. And it's all about your consciousness. And, and when it comes to ethics, um, it's never like the point. It's like, it's, it's more, it's a little bit more about the quality of your consciousness. You're trying to get to a place of spaciousness, kind of like you're saying, like you want to bend in the breeze, you want to be not attached. And often in a lot of the reading, I do morality. And as someone who was raised in the Christian church where morality was every fucking mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. don't swear. And, and you look <laughs> like you're going to heaven right. and you're probably going to heaven. <laughs> and of course I was drawn to the East and to mystical Christianity as well, but mostly the East that was like, it's not even what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. Right. Uh, it's like, who is doing it and how, cause you can be the utilitarian and we all do the 4%, but our inner world is like tight. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yeah, we could be in a utopia, but we're all just sort of like, God, God, fuck yeah. Like we all turn into Bill Burr's, <laughs> you know, on stage. Um, where, where in your, all of your study, did you get any of that? Like, look, maybe you are uh, being an asshole, um, but that didn't really matter as much because you weren't identified with your assholiness. You, I, I don't even know how to explain it. What does it make you think of? Well, a couple of things. One is, if you want to talk about Aristotle, that is Aristotle basically promises you that if you follow his theory, you won't ever be an asshole. Like the the, the state of flourishing for him is a, almost like godlike 
state. It's almost like I have I have figured out I've I'm Neo at the end of the Matrix. I have I see the code. I understand the world I'm in so completely that I I'm a sort of above petty things or petty feelings like jealousy and anger and because you you feel you feel all those things you just feel them in the right amount like that's part of why i like aristotle is he's like i'm not saying you can never get angry there is anger is a thing you need if you if you're a person who never gets angry then you won't stand up for for uh, in uh, in the face of injustice you right you won't you won't get upset at at uh, politicians who are corrupt you won't you won't stand up for a kid who's being bullied or whatever like you need anger you just need the right amount and it needs to be aimed at the right people for the right reasons. And so he's very, I find his approach the most humanistic because it allows for those feelings you're describing sometimes. You need them. They're good. Like cowardice is good at some level for Aristotle because it prevents you from doing something rash and stupid. So he's not saying you can never get angry. You can never feel jealousy. You can never be impatient. He's saying you you need all of those things. You just have to use them at the right time and the right amount for the right reasons. Mm. There's other philosophers who either don't care about that, um, who are sort of like philosophers do this thing. Almost all of them do this thing where they they describe like why they spend a lot of time describing like why humans are awesome and incredible and the reasons that they're awesome and incredible and basically worth writing about or worth examining is because we can use our brains. Like that's what separates us from from wild boars and chipmunks and squirrels and whatever is because we have the ability to reason. And then they usually take this other step where they're like, they basically say that the highest form of being human is the per is the kind of human who uses his brain all the time and is super smart and everybody really likes that person. And you realize they're just all justifying themselves yeah. having yeah. having positions of authority in the culture. Yeah. Uh, and so they either don't they're like Kant, for example, it wants to drill out of you the idea that emotion is meaningful. Like he doesn't want you to think that um, that you should make any decision based on anger or frustration or sadness or anything, because those are the same kinds of emotions that that stupid wild boar is going to have. Like a wild boar can be angry. And so if a wild boar makes a decision because it's angry and you make a decision because you're angry, you're no different from a wild boar. And because you're a person and you have a brain and you can reason these things out, you have to, you can only act from the set of things that you have that's better than that, that's different from what those animals have. So they're very unforgiving about uh, some, some philosophers are very unforgiving about those feelings you're describing. Those like those inner tightnesses or angers or petty jealousies or whatever. Because they, in their minds, it's like, leave all that stuff in the animal world and come here to the human world where we're just these super brains floating in jars. I don't find that very appealing. I, I, like, I, I don't like that approach because it just feels too stringent to me. It's like, you can't ask people to do a bunch of stuff that's really hard, right? You can't ask people to make yourself 4% better every day or to act only out of pure virtue and not accept the fact that sometimes when we do that, we're going to be really fucking annoyed. <laughs> it's going to be annoying. These things that you're asking of us are annoying and they're hard and we don't want to do them because we want to just go home and eat Doritos and watch uh, Stranger Things or whatever. Like, And, and so I prefer a, a, any kind of system that just acknowledges how hard this is, how 
how brutally difficult your day-to-day life is, even when you are among the luckiest people on earth. Even me and you, every day, will we'll encounter 20 to 50 things that are just irritating, that make us flash with anger or snap at our kids or yell at the dog or like... What are you, like, me? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone that listens to this is like, I can't believe you said yell at the dog. 90% of my guilt is that I'm not more patient with the dog. I, I don't yell at yeah. him, but I, I feel it inside. And then I'm humiliated and embarrassed that I was me too. so me, mad at my dog barking. Me too. <laughs> Uh, my dogs and my dogs and my kids, uh, my dogs and my kids. And like my, my wife once told me that the reason she married me uh, isn't because I don't annoy her. It's because of all of the people she had met to that point in her life. I annoyed her the least of anyone. <laughs> and in a weird way, that's an incredibly romantic thing to say. She was saying it as a joke, I think. But I think it's a very romantic thing to say because life is annoying. Other people are annoying. Your kids are annoying. Your dogs are annoying. Driving is annoying. Being at work is annoying. Like going to the bathroom is annoying. Everything <laughs> is annoying. And so if you find someone like in it, so if, you, if you're in a situation where a philosopher is asking you essentially, hey, uh, you can't ever be annoyed. You can't ever feel anger or frustration or bitterness or jealousy that that's not going to get you very far, I think, because there's no way there's just, that's not realistic. And I think that part of, part of trying to improve as a person is just acknowledging your own deep, awful flaws, like the acknowledging the fact that like you can't, especially in Hollywood, like we live in a place where every time anybody has any kind of success, a bunch of newspapers write about it. And you're constantly being measured against your peers and you're yeah. constantly being being feeling like I'm you're being you're falling behind or you're taking a very unpleasant amount of satisfaction in the fact that you're racing ahead at a certain moment. Mm-hmm. And like that's a terrible system. Like we shouldn't be engaging in that system. But no, specialness is you think it's what saves you and it's actually what's killing you. Yeah. You yes. work so so hard to be separate and special, and then you realized you 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 were left behind by the pack in another way. Yeah. Now, now you're Daniel Plainview at the end. Of, there will be blood. <laughs> yes. You, know you have an saying? enormous mansion and you're You've bowling by yourself and you have no friends and your <laughs> and your kid is, is has died in an oil fire or whatever happened. I did forget that movie now. Oh, he's not dead. Uh, but uh, he's deaf. But, he is. He's lost his hearing. It's spelled differently. D E A F. I I knew it was D E A something. <laughs> <laughs> and not the Drug Enforcement Agency. I uh, loved everything you just said. I wanted to, the annoying thing. I can't believe it. This, this, okay. I don't know how to work this in, but something you just said made me want to tell you this story. And it Great. just happened yesterday. And I really, with everything you've written and everything you've said, I really want to get your analysis. <laughs> Excellent. Okay? I'm ready. What I've started doing with Leela is I take her on walks. Uh, that's my daughter around the neighborhood. Instead of taking her to the park, she can walk now. Like she's she's been able to walk for years, but like she can walk longer. So okay. I'll walk her all around and we'll go in different shops. And the other day, literally yesterday, we went in the shop 
and it was a clothing shop and they sold knickknacks too. And we went in the back and they had like a three-way mirror, like mirrors on three walls. And Leela is three years old. She's never seen this before. She's never been in a room with four Leelas. I videotaped it. <laughs> it was her with three mirrored Leelas and one real Leela. And she was running, not running. She wasn't being that loud. She was like touching it and right. kind of rubbing it all and like bumping into it, hugging it. At one point she was like kissing it and like falling down and laughing, just joy. Mike, it was joy. Right. It, fucking COVID is coming. And here was joy. This child was filling the store with free joy. And then I heard the man who was just sitting at the counter looking at his phone go, um, can you tell her to not touch the glass? We try to keep the glass clean. <laughs> and Mike, <laughs> I am such a phony because what I did was I said, "Oh yeah, no problem." And I got on my knees and I said, "Lila, we have to, we have to stop." Mm-hmm. Um, and I picked her up. And my quiet protest was, I left without buying anything. I was going to buy something, right. but I left without buying anything. And then this kind of ties into the morality and all that stuff. Is I was because of my interest in spirituality, I was trying to get into a place where I was grateful to this person. And and I wanted to sit with the frustration until it revealed itself as some sort of lesson. And really what it did was it humiliated me to the point where I realized that for a lot of my life, I do walk around feeling like the rules don't apply to me, that my kids should be able to touch the thing, that you actually should be lucky that I'm doing this. And also, <laughs> fuck you, like, fuck you. Like, if I really looked at it, I was like, how dare you tell me to do anything? And 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 you, and then, and this is ugly, I shouldn't share this, but I should be like, the the American fantasy is like, here's a thousand dollars. Fuck you. Clean the mirror. I I, I did I'm ashamed as I'm sharing this. But I hear it, you. No, nothing is gained in me not telling you the dark corners of my shadow. <laughs> what is that though? That is that is a lesson. That is straight. You work in retail, I have a thousand dollars. That that's just thinking you're better than somebody. That's putting yeah. you ahead of them. Tell me everything that that made you think of. Okay, there's so, this is a great story. I love this story <laughs> for for many reasons. First of all, there's well, a one cert- of them was give me the Windex, I'll clean it. Like fuck you, I'll clean it. Right. Like you don't want to clean the mirror, I'll clean it. <laughs> There's a th- there's that story has like 12 things in it. Right. Because it it, it, it reminded me right away of there, there's a certain getting back to this Buddhist sort of mindfulness idea there. You had a moment of mindfulness and so did your daughter because you were just in a moment and you were only focused on that moment and the joy of that moment. And you were just experiencing something that you didn't expect and you were loving it just for it. And it was just the world disappeared. The world dropped away. And you were watching your daughter be happy and that made you happy. And your daughter, the happiness is so pure. And, and I, re- it made me think of briefly when my son was about your daughter's age, all he cared about, like a lot of boys was trucks and cars and machines. And on our street, around the corner from our street, they were tearing up the street. And it was like a long, it was like went on for months. And there were these huge diggers and backhoes and stuff out there. And all he ever wanted to do was go look at the backhoes. And so we would wake up at 5.30 in the morning and he would go, he would go, car, truck, car, truck, car, truck, with the only words he said. And I would go, God damn it. Like on day 73 of this, like I was going to kill myself, but we would walk outside and we would go around the corner and it didn't matter if it was raining or sunny or cold or hot or whatever. And he would just stand there and just stare at them. And I would just like lose my mind, just quietly lose my mind. (laughs) And then one day I was like, you know what? This is inescapable. 
right now. He just, this is what he wants to do and it makes him happy. And so I'm going to, I'm buying it. I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to like, look at him and I'm going to just be with him in this moment. And once I did that, my life got so much better. I was so happy. And then I started like, I started talking to him about it and, and, and talking about, Oh, look at that. Look at the way that the claw moves, whatever. Then the guy who drove the backhoe was like, Hey, does he want to sit in the backhoe? No. And I was like, buddy, do you want to go? And he was like, yeah. And though he like, the, the guy, the thing was off. It was safe. <laughs> it was not an operational backhoe. Yes, yes. Uh, but he, he like brought my son up and my son s- sat in the chair and moved the steering wheel and just same thing. Just joy, 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 happiness, happiness, happiness. Right. And you, that's what you had with your daughter. And yes. so I think the, so then that guy who is looking at his phone, by the way, importantly, I think in the story, I'm glad you noticed yeah. because in the script, it says cashier <laughs> on phone. Parentheses on phone. Yeah. It's on phone. <laughs> there is no way the audition, you have to be looking at your phone, everything. Yes. Go on. So he does something just unnecessarily cruel. Like it might be a rule in the store that, you have to keep those mirrors clean or whatever. And he might think, God damn it, I just cleaned those things an hour ago. And now this is ruining my life again or whatever. You would hope that in that moment, that person would get with some of the joy your daughter's experiencing would float across the room. That's what like I wanted. A, like an old timey cartoon when the actually, pie is on the windowsill and the, and the yes, aroma this, floats over. Actually, Mike, I do want to say I wasn't even thinking of him. And that's unlike me. And that's what made it so special. Right. I, I was filming her because I was like, this is a, a treasure forever. Right. Right. And I wasn't even looking at my phone. I was watching her and the phone was there. And then I heard his voice and I thought when I, when I remembered he was there, I was like, maybe he's going to be like, thank you for <laughs> you've made my, you've made my Christmas bright. <laughs> and motherfucker. If we shoot this, which we will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Full length feature. At, it's at Christmas. It is at Christmas. Yeah. Which is the time for the kids and yes. for the smeary mirrors. Right. This is all my righteousness. Keep- well, so you yeah. would hope, so what you were hoping for in that moment was that it would, the joy would permeate in a Hallmark movie kind of a way and that he would experiencing, he would experience what you were experiencing. Then when he didn't, and he kind of took this unnecessary hardline stance on this dumb issue, <laughs> you're like, you're, you have this, you have these competing thoughts, like I'm sure as, as a guy like me who likes to follow rules and who likes, who doesn't like to cause trouble, your competing thoughts are, okay, this person works here. This person is a human being who deserves respect and I'm not going to be a a lunatic and scream and yell. And your other thought over here is like, oh, come on. Like there's no one else in the store. We're not hurting anyone, whatever. Then you have a some really dark thought from somewhere, which is like, I could give you a thousand dollars. I could buy a thousand dollars worth of stuff in here. Yeah. But uh, it you, you were suddenly Julia Roberts and Pretty Woman being like, yes. you work on commission, don't That's you? It. Big mistake. Buddy, yeah. I, somebody just told me a story about Jack Nicholson going to a golf course. He wasn't a member and they showed up. I, I told this to Yvette Nicole Brown. We talked about it at length. And the, and the story is, uh, they were like, Mr. Nicholson, you can't golf here. And he goes, how much is it to be a member? And then he wrote a check for $500,000, gave the guy a check and went, now stop bothering the members, <laughs> right? So when I tell you that my fantasy, one of the fantasies was, or, or the ways that I played it out was, 
I, I'll give you a thousand dollars to let my daughter play in this room right now. Right. That is because I am a pro I'm not, I'm not passing the buck. I'm just saying I am a product of Western achiever mm -hmm. consumer. If you are special, if you have money, you deserve whatever you want and look to culture for other myriad examples of this yeah. Look to Johnny Depp flying his dinner. In. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's a part of us. It's sick. That goes like, it's pretty cool though. It's pretty cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I tell me everything about that. Tell me well, what there, there, there is a um, there's a temptation for people who have power and authority and money and status to deploy it all the time. Like and because America, like many Western countries, is a country that prizes above all hierarchies. We love a good hierarchy in this country. Mm -hmm. We love a velvet rope. We love an exclusive club. We love, uh, are you platinum or diamond or diamond elite or whatever? We love um, it, it. You can get this product in five days or you can pay this much money and get it in two days. Like we, all of this stuff, we, we love it. We you love it, so man. so right, Prime. Oh, are you Prime? Oh. I it's mean, even called Prime. Yes, it was, it's, so it's fucking crazy. It's called Prime. The most embarrassing aspect of this to me is how easy it is for these companies to 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 push those buttons. Like it's so easy. You just call anything Diamond Elite, and everyone goes like, "Well, I want that." Well, I why would I not just, want the Diamond Elite version? I just bought a thing. I'm not even going to tell you what a thing because I've been talking about this thing too much. But I bought a thing, and there was another version of the thing, and it was called Pro. And I wanted the point. <laughs> it's really and the that, same exact thing. It <laughs> is the same exact thing, except the motor is a little bit more powerful because it's meant for commercial use. So like, but because it was called pro Mike, again, yeah. I'm embarrassed to admit that. It's but I, embarrassing, but you've, like you said, we have also grown up in this culture. Look, if we, if we had grown up in a village in, in uh, Zimbabwe or Northern Finland or a, a number of other places, we wouldn't, this wouldn't be our instinct. Yeah. Like if we were, it just wouldn't be, but like, this is the culture in which we grow up. And so our That's job, right. our job is to analyze it, understand it and resist it. And so right. importantly, I think you had the, the fantasy of deploying your status and your money and your power and your capital, but you didn't because, because you have a regulator in your brain that regulates your action and that regulator is pretty well. You've read a bunch of books. You've talked to a bunch of people. You're a you're an you're a person who's interested in exploring his own psyche. Your regulator is a high functioning regulator, and it said like, well, that would be kind of fun in a perverse, disgusting, awful Hollywood way to do that. Yeah. But I'm not actually going to do it. I'm not actually going to scream at this guy. I'm going to like talk to my daughter and like try to get her to to. She's three years old. She's going to lose interest in these mirrors in thirty seconds anyway. Right, right. And so, yeah, like there, you can have the. It's okay. This is what I mean by like acknowledging our fundamental flaws as people. Like, right. it's okay that you had that that fantasy for two seconds. It's okay. Like that's a. It's a natural thing to have. Yes. And it, what's important is that you didn't act on it. That you're not the kind of person that we've all seen videos of yelling and screaming in a Trader Joe's about freedom and America and democracy and George Washington and bald eagles because mm -hmm. someone said like, hey, would you mind putting on a mask so we don't all die? <laughs> they do much to ask? Apparently, but, yes. Like, yeah, I, I, so I, that, like, that, that I just, to, to put a fine point on this, mm. the moments where humans clash with other humans in, in any arena, big or small, with differences of opinion, or you have to do this, or can you please do this, or whatever, 
you're going to feel a thousand things. And, and some of those things you're going to feel aren't your favorite things, right? They're going to be the side of you that said six months ago, I'm, I have to fly to New York and you know what? I, I'm going to be exhausted and I'm going to buy, I'm going to spend the extra money and buy a, a seat in business class so I can just stretch out and maybe take a nap and not, not fly in coach. The side of you that has that ability in a moment like that is going to basically say, can I, can I buy the business class version of that? Can I buy pro? Can I buy my daughter looks at this mirror in this shop pro for an extra $19.99? You're going to have that feeling because that's a possibility in your life, right? And, yes. and so it's okay. And what's more important to me about that story is that you didn't demand to speak to the manager. You said like, okay, I'm on this guy's home turf here. He's working this retail job. It's his, the story's his responsibility. So even though, yes, there's no one else here, and even though it's such a small thing, and even though I don't think cleaning the glass is that big a deal, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play by his rules because it's his store. And, yeah. and I think that the end result of that is the right result, even though it's, so, it's ridiculous. And if I were that guy, if you were that guy, I think I would have been like, oh, let the girl play on the mirror and I'll spray Windex on. It'll take me 30 seconds at the end of the day. But that, so that goes back to what I was saying about my parents. So Eckhart Tolle says a big problem is people think what they, I already said this, but what they believe is who they are. So I believe that we all live in a world where if a little girl drops an ice cream cone, you give her a free one. Of course. Right. And I believe that if a little girl is, and by the way, there's the parent bias here. Leela is like a celebrity to us. We're right. just like, how do you not, like, if you show a picture of my daughter to somebody and they're like, mm-hmm, I'm like, oh, you're a sociopath. Like, you're, you're like, <laughs> I now know that you have a head in your freezer. Like you're insane. <laughs> so when in that moment, I am living in a world that my father architected for me. Like he, mm-hmm. he said, this is how the world is. My dad's philosophy is lighten up. My dad's <laughs> philosophy is like, that's like his mantra, lighten up, lighten up. Can't you take a joke? Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite things about him. He, he is a rule bending person. On the other side of that is he thinks he's special. He thinks he deserves special treatment. Right. He is a straight white man. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, it's a privilege. There's a lot of flaws there. And that and that's what I uncovered there. I was like, Pete, you think you're special. You think you deserve. Because the, the other fantasy that I didn't tell you um, but throwing a Molotov cocktail through the window and burning the store down. Hilarious. <laughs> I'm so glad that I'm not Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker <laughs> because Heath Ledger's the Joker would have thought of something more clever, but Joaquin Phoenix is the Joker. He just would have stabbed the guy or something like just something horrible. Um, I thought of, and it's based on, remember Kevin Smith and I'm not, I'm not saying Kevin Smith was bad or wrong, uh, but Kevin Smith was trying to fly in Southwest and, and they were like, there was some issue. He was oh, he, he was too seats. large for the seat and they asked him to buy a second seat or something like that. And then he right? said, I'm not going to do that. And then they said, this is another one of those Jack Nicholson stories. He goes, if you could just go sit over there, uh, we'll, we'll call you when we have a second seat for you to buy or something. And Kevin Smith said, no, I'm going to go sit over there. And in 10 minutes, you're going to come looking for me. Again, it's a good story. It's a very Western story. Yeah. It's a very like gunslinger story. It's a stop bothering the members. Here's a check for $500,000 story. And he went over and he started tweeting about it. And he has millions and millions of followers. And they did. 
They right. did come in. It's you, Mike. It's you get, getting shit at a uh, at a Brooks Brothers, and then Tina Fey and 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 you know <laughs> your famous friends come in and go. This guy giving you grief, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that is a by the way spot on Tina Fey impression. Oh, just... <laughs> this guy giving you grief. Hey, what's the big idea? That's how she talks. I've always known that. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Now I I personally find that behavior reprehensible. Mm. I, I don't, I, I think that one of the worst things that you can do as a person with enormous weight and uh, no pun intended with yeah, Kevin I, Smith, I meant, I meant, yes, yes. <laughs> I meant status, right? Yes. As a person with enormous status being like, Oh yeah. Watch this. Like that is to me is just like, Oh, come well, it's, on. It's violence begets violence. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's also, but it's, it's really like, you don't know. You just stepped in it, buddy, because wait until you get a hold of my Instagram but comments or whatever. As you're saying that, how many movies, though, are just like, oh, you think you're going to stab me? I'm Jason Bourne. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, you can't. I'm watching when we were talking about Netflix. I, I started watching The Witcher just because this is a sauna behind me and I needed a sauna show. And it's it's I'm actually really enjoying it. And it's it's Game of Thrones, but you don't have to follow anything. <laughs> that's that's my that's my review of it. And what I didn't like about Game of Thrones is I was like, what region are they from? Like I couldn't. It wasn't for me. So um, there are, and it's a trope. The lone guy with a sword goes in a tavern, mm-hmm. and seven guys get up and say, "We don't like you. We're going to kill you." Right. And we've seen it a fa- hundred thousand. So times. many times. Yeah. And yet. Like the word prime or diamond pro, we love it. I fucking can't help but love it when he cuts all their heads off. Yeah. And that's Kevin Smith in that moment. You yeah, know, it's I, it's very you're right. It's like the guy who steps outside the bar and all of these eight other guys surround him and you're just like, here we go, baby. Like <laughs> you've messed with the wrong ombre or whatever. <laughs> like it that and that it is an extremely American idea. I yes, think. it's an extremely it's, it's John American. Wayne. It's, John yeah, it's John Wayne. It's frontierism. It's sort of like one man, one outlaw with a gun, one guy standing up to all the bad guys. Like always, out, one guy. Yeah. Always, or maybe there's a second. Maybe it's Butch and Sundance kind of thing. But there's it's always the uh, don't. It's Han Solo saying, "Never tell me the odds." It's like yeah. there just this is a, there is a long long history here of like if you're the best you can defeat any any number of people you could out punch out kick out shoot out fight and the problem is is that you know in in the john wayne in the western movies there's usually like a town is under siege from a a group of of evil bandits who are raping and pillaging and and or who are corrupt and who are robbing the local saloons and in comes John Wayne with a, with one shotgun and one pistol and he cleans up the town. In this case, it's just a rich dude. Who's like, fuck you. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to yeah, get out of right. this. I'm going to avoid he, There's nothing noble about his end goal. And I think that what happens sometimes is we don't differentiate between in the, in the artistic examples in the movies and TV shows, there's some Jason Bourne's trying to save the world. There's a bomb somewhere. There's like a guy who's trying to kill him. There's some shadowy government enterprise that's ruining the yes. Amer- Western society. You mean Blackbriar? 
Project Blackbriar? <laughs> yes. Is it, wait, is it Blackbriar? Is that Don't what you say it. Up? That's that's the word. Now the CIA is listening. <laughs> yes, but yes, it's Blackbriar. They're they're abusing. What about? I thought it was Treadstone. What about what's Treadstone? Well, uh, Blackbriar was folded into Treadstone. <laughs> I see. I was I didn't get the memo when those organ when the Homeland Security reorganized. But the, but like we don't differentiate between. People watch those movies and then they think to themselves, like, I'm John Wayne. I'm Jason Bourne. I don't have to play by the same rules as everybody else because I'm the hero of my own story. But isn't and that's, the, that's the, problematic. The meal flown in from New York. Isn't it that? Because what you don't see, and, and uh, who, I think it's Eckhart Tolle talks about an, a dishonest representation of violence. He's like, there are very few movies that show violence and then actually show the repercussions of like, I'm talking about like real violence, like what really happens when right. violence happens. Right. Uh, and, and that is not what I'm watching the Witcher for admittedly, <laughs> but he kills those seven people and interesting. It's probably uh, hackneyed actually, but like it's potentially interesting. The ramifications, the people that saw that, you know, then go on the people that hear the Jack Nicholson story are more likely to be like, here's a thousand dollars, go fucking clean the mirror. So what I'm saying is me telling you that story on this podcast without an exploration of every perspective, the people in the village that saw the witcher kill those seven people kind of go like, well, if someone stands up to you, you should kill them. Like <laughs> where, where are the stories? Like, obviously I, I love uh, religion and spirituality. It, it's, it's the biggest joke in the world, I think, is that we, claim to love jesus in this world mm-hmm. the, the literally the guy that's eight people surround him outside of a bar and it's worse than he walks away walk away we could deal with he lets them beat him up right that's that's our that's this country's hero yes you mean the diamond elite people <laughs> like yeah <laughs> like and i'm calling bullshit on myself i struggle and that's what that story is about is me struggling to to see the divinity and the beauty and the mystery in that guy who was having a bad day working at that shop. Yeah. And to, this is what the story of the temptation in the desert is. It's like uh, money, give him a thousand dollars and tell him to kiss your ass. Uh, tweet about him. Say, let's all ban the store. They don't like children. They don't like children's right. uh, joy. Right. You fucking idiot. All that stuff. Or, or do you know who I am or any of that? Right. And that's what Jesus is in the desert. It's a story. I don't believe it literally happened, but he's talking to the devil and the devil is like, Hey, you realized you're God. Wouldn't you like to be a, a multi-billionaire? Right. Uh, and he's like, no. He's like, wouldn't you like to eat some bread that turn these stones into bread? And he says, no, this is the, the official religion of the makers of the Super Bowl. It, the official religion is the guy who said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Yes. Like that's that you think yes. that's what that's not the way Twitter works. <laughs> that's not that's not we're not following that dictum. Like, no, I've, of course, it's it's also it's also hypocritical. Right. And I think that the beauty and the divinity and the spirituality of that moment actually has nothing to do with that guy. It has to do with you and your daughter. It has to do with the fact that you experienced a moment with your daughter that gave her and you pure joy. It was interrupted unfairly and maybe overly uh, sticklery. It was interrupted by a person who isn't a part of the narrative that was happening. Right. But then suddenly inserted him into the narrative, inserted himself into the narrative in a, in a way that he didn't need to. And then you had a quiet moment with your daughter where you said, hey, we have to not touch the glass, which 
in her three-year-old brain might have already disappeared, but might have worked her its way into your into her soul a tiny bit where she's now learned that the world has rules and that sometimes you can't always do the things that you want to do and that that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then you picked her up and you walked out of the store and you went about your day. And somehow somewhere in there, there's a there's a little tiny grain of something that it really has to do with you and her and not with him that like right. all of all all religious parables all uh, philosophical stories and parables and and thought experiments involve an interloper making a choice or a decision that throws everything out of whack that's how you get to answer the questions of what's good and bad behavior that guy was your interloper he served his function in the story, but the beauty and the mystery and the divinity of that story has nothing to do with him. It has to do with you and your daughter and what happened before and after he inter interjected uh, into your into your life. And this goes back to what we were talking about before. It's like things not going your way, leading to more flourishing. Right. So, and I'm going to tell you the story because I we walked out of the store and Leela was over it. I mean, yeah. Leela never had a problem. Yeah, she's three. She never, she didn't, none of this registered. It never was a thing ever because she's just living bam right here in the now and we were walking up the street and my wife Val has helped me understand that it's not our feelings it's our embarrassment that we're feeling them that's it's changed my life and it wasn't just that I was still replaying it in my mind it's that I was embarrassed that we're now half a block away from this place and I hadn't I hadn't dropped it and this is the story that I remembered uh, that helped me get over it is it's a, a Buddhist story there are two monks uh, living in a monastery. They go for a walk outside of the monastery. And there's a woman, um, and I forget why, you can write your own reason why, but she needs help crossing this little river. And the, one of the monks, they're silent, but he picks up the woman, which is forbidden. He's not mm -hmm. supposed to touch a woman. And he crosses the river and he puts her down on the other side. Then he returns to the other monk and they walk. And they walk for like three miles in silence. And finally, the other monk, the second monk, says to the carrying monk, he says, um, what were you doing? Why did you touch that woman? You know, that's forbidden. And the monk who carried her goes, are you still carrying her? I put her down three miles ago. <laughs> and I was just like, that was the story that came to mind. I was like, it's now, not only is it like a wonderful parable and story and fun fodder for us to discuss ethically, morally, spiritually, all these things, but it was this reminder to go like, hey, dummy, this is the only thing that's happening right now. And yeah. it, was, it was suffering that snapped me into a, a very delightful walk. And 10 minutes later, we were drinking hot oat milk and she calls it coffee and we were laughing. <laughs> yeah. We were having a great time. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I love that parable because it gets at something true that we've sort of been talking about, right? Which is like, as a human being, the curse of being alive is that you are encountering situations all the time that require you to act and the answer is not clear, right? It's not as clear as like, um, should you, like if, if someone, uh, if someone, the, Peter Singer has this parable called the boy in the drowning river where you're walking along and you see a boy drowning in very shallow water, like, you know, knee high water. A hundred out of a hundred people will say, oh, okay, your moral duty is to rush in and grab the boy and stop him from drowning. And if you are a person who says, I know I should do that, but I just bought these shoes and I really like them and I don't want to ruin them. So I'm actually not going to do that. Good luck, kid. And you just walk, walk away. Like 
that is plainly and obviously the wrong choice, right? Mm-hmm. And he uses that to illustrate the fact that we know that there are children drowning in rivers, actual rivers, and also metaphorically drowning in rivers all over the world right now. We know that there are people in great amounts of distress and sadness. And the cost of helping them is probably less than a pair of new shoes. And yet we're, we, we don't just automatically think, oh, we should send that money to help those kids in, in Syria or in, uh, you know, in some parts of uh, sub-Saharan Africa where they're dying of malaria. We don't have the same instinct to help them that we would if we saw the kid right in front of us. And his question is, why does the problem have to literally be in our, in, in our line of vision for us to act? So that's why he uses that parable. But what's interesting about that Buddhist parable to me is that in most situations you're in, the answer is not as clear as, oh, I should rescue this kid from the river. It's some, there's, in, in this case, it's this woman needs help, but by helping her, I am violating some kind of central tenet of my religion. Is that still okay? And what basically what, what the carrying monk decided was like, he did a very quick calculation and he was like, well, my desire to be 100% pure in my own tenets when it comes to things like, is it okay to touch women, is not as important as this woman who is in distress needing to get across that river. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put my thing aside for a second. I'm going to take her across the river. And as soon as she's across the river, I go back to living my life the way I led it before. And the other monk suffered way more than he did because the other monk let it get to him for 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 another hour. And it's not fundamentally different from me being starving on a miserable trip with my family Eating and being like, look, I'm a vegetarian, but like I'm going to eat a cheeseburger. And then on the other side of it, I'm going to go back to being a vegetarian for all of the reasons I decided to be one in the first place. The world will keep spinning. Everything will still be fine. Like it's just, it's okay. And I think that part of this mentality that we've been talking about, the American Western gunslinger mentality is that only I matter. Like only uh, my, my things are the things that matter. My code, my behavior, my, uh, my way of thinking about the world that matters. Yours doesn't, or it might to you, but I don't give a shit. Mine, mine is the one I'm the protagonist here. And so what ends up happening is people never want to never want to alter their behavior because in their minds, they're right. And everybody else is either wrong or irrelevant. And that's why people don't wear masks. And that's why people don't don't want to. Some people don't want to, you know, try to use less gas in their cars and blah, 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 and on and on and on. And what I love about that parable is like, I think that the process of being alive on Earth is one where you have some sense of integrity of who you are and what you believe and how you behave and what matters. And then occasionally you bump up against someone out there who has a different way of looking at things or a problem that would require you to alter your sense of integrity, maybe for five seconds, maybe for the length of time it takes to eat a cheeseburger, but it requires you to make a little sacrifice in your own life. And the question is, are you going to do that? Or are you going to be the person who folds their arms and stares at a situation and says, you're not allowed to touch that glass because mm. that's a rule in this store, even though like technically you're right, you're tr- it's true <laughs> that you can get away with it in a court of law. No judge would convict you. But you're just kind of like making the world a tiny bit worse by doing yeah. that. Like that yeah. guy, bless his heart made the world a tiny bit worse. The entire world got a tiny bit worse because he just didn't want to let your daughter goof around. 
But then you and I talking about it is giving a lot of people joy, including me. <laughs> Isn't that fun? I guess. Yeah. Well, that today, like we're making lemonade out of lemons, I guess. I, but yeah. I, I think I, that yeah. I just think that the I, I what what writing this book and studying all this stuff has really made me understand is that like whether or not whether or not you are technically speaking right about whatever it is you're doing it's it that is not as important as like is doing what you're doing making the world a millionth of a percent better or a millionth of a percent worse and if the answer is making it a millionth of a percent worse then maybe don't do it like if that monk technically speaking wasn't right to do that because there was a code of conduct that he had agreed to that said you're not allowed to touch women whether or not that's a good code of conduct is irrelevant for now that was the way he lived his life he's he ostensibly swore some kind of oath to live his life in a certain way and he had to he had to break that oath but he made the world one millionth of a percent better by helping a person in distress for a very brief amount of time. And then on the other side of it, he went back to living his life the same way he was before and everything was okay. And the world didn't end. And, and he wasn't a bad person and he didn't, he's not a bad monk. It's just, there are times when, when an immovable force meets in whatever it is, an immovable object meets an unstoppable force force or whatever, and something's got to give. And so if you can be the one to give in those moments, if it doesn't really hurt you, in yeah. a significant or meaningful way, then just be the one to give and make the world a millionth of a percent better. Yeah. I think it was Moby who said an unstoppable force. <laughs> <laughs> Moby and Jack Nicholson were talking. <laughs> That's right. I, um, yeah, you know, sorry to keep mentioning Jesus, but they would always try to trick him by saying, should you rescue a goat if it falls in a hole on the Sabbath or uh, pick wheat on the Sabbath if, if someone is starving? And him, right. like, what's interesting is, it's all about altitudes. It's like when you're trying to belong to a tribe, that's important. But when you wake up to what we were talking about earlier, which is your true identity is sort of potential itself is life itself. Then you can make those types of subtle distinctions like you eating the cheeseburger. Yeah. Which was victimless except for the diarrhea. I'm sure you <laughs> there's no way you didn't have horrible. You know, what's weird is I've eaten meat a number of times over the 10 years I've been a vegetarian and nothing kind of nothing happens to my, to my body. I, 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 yeah, I know what you mean. I'll cheat with uh, chicken and I'll, I, I won't have a, yeah, it's like, it's like fine. Like my wife and I went on an anniversary trip and I was like, well, I'm not, I'm probably, I just want to eat whatever I want to eat. So I sort of slowly like worked a little meat into my diet and it was all fine. And it, yeah. it was actually a good lesson of like, again, the world didn't stop spinning. You know what I mean? Like the, the, everything was okay. Like, I, I think that there is some, the thing that's gotten me more, like felt more of a gut punch than anything else since COVID started is the inflexibility people's inflexibility about things. Like basically everybody, everyone on earth was asked to make a series of small sacrifices and a solid third to 40% of the country was like, no, (laughs) I will not. I will not make any sacrifices. Zero. I will make zero sacrifices. We'll stop bothering the members. Yeah. Stop bothering the members. Yeah. Except they didn't give us (laughs) (laughs) $500,000. If they had all written a check to like, to like food banks and stuff for 500 grand, I'd be like, all right, it's not great, but like at least some good came out of this. Well, that's interesting. I don't want to make you 
Judge Judy. I mean, I do sort of in a sexual way. <laughs> no, no, um, I don't want to make you make rulings, but we were talking about, I was having this conversation with somebody and I think, I don't know what technique they were using, but it was whenever you almost had them in the corner that changed the subject somehow, it was very frustrating. But we were talking about like Leonardo DiCaprio and you sort of mentioned this in your book, like if you get beyond meat or, or impossible meat instead of meat. Right. Um, obviously beef, it might be rainforest, cattle and mm-hmm. you know, the emissions and also just the ethics of a sentient being that feels fear and pain being killed because you like the taste of something that tastes pretty similar to the synthetic thing. But then the synthetic thing was brought over, you know, flown in from who knows how far away. You don't know the implications of, of the ingredients. Obviously I'm not saying I've read something about the ingredients of those companies. I eat those companies. So what am I, what am I doing right now? So many disclaimers. <laughs> so many disclaimers. <laughs> but we were talking about Leonardo DiCaprio and how he, you know, he is on the board of Beyond Meat and mm-hmm. his meat is one of the biggest it's worse than planes, trains, automobiles, and other Steve Martin junk <laughs> <laughs> combined. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, if you really care about water and if you really care about carbon, um, we should rethink how many animals we eat. Like, even right. if it was just one meal a day, you eat money ball it, eat 4% would, less this year than right. you did last year. Yeah. It would be insane. I go to Cafe Gratitude all the time. They have a thing that said, if everybody went vegetarian for one day and it had all the the things you would say, and it's like, it's staggering. Yeah. So really, it is just like, what if it was one meal? You know, we eat a million animals an hour in this country, an hour. And it's just like, it's an incredible, it's like, you couldn't, if that's what you were going for, like, I'm proud of us. <laughs> like, sort of like, yeah. And on wow. the one hand, you're like, yeah, it is impressive. You got to <laughs> yeah. give it up. It's an impressive it, number. It's anchor, man. I'm not even mad. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, but where was I going? Oh, so we were talking about Leo DiCaprio and he was like, this person in a very funny way and sort of a loud comedic way was going like, yeah, but he flies private. These hypocritical motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to make the argument that one Leonardo DiCaprio sort of makes a bigger impact. Like Leonardo DiCaprio getting from place to place to place and doing these talks might have a net. I'm sure in, in this book, you probably talk about net gains yeah. a lot. Yeah. What do, you, what, do you, what do we say when it's like Leo does fly private? I don't know, sometimes. Uh, or all the time, but his message, his using of his image to promote environmental issues is like, he might be the only person on the plane, but he has the impact of 300,000 people. So yeah. really there's 300,000 people on the plane question. <laughs> <laughs> this is a straight utilitarian calculation, right? Yeah. It's like the amount of good he does with his fame and his money and his status is enormous. And the amount of bad he does by flying on a private jet is compared to that relatively small. And so you also have to realize there is no world in which Leonardo DiCaprio can fly public on a public jet. It's not like you or me flying on a, on a, on a Delta. Like he can't if he did, he would be mobbed and attacked and it would be, it's hard days. And it'd be, he'd be running and hiding yeah. in phone booth, old timey phone booths, as, <laughs> as crowds of women ran by him. He'd have so a like, magazine with his picture on the front <laughs> over his face that had slowly lowered. Yeah, like he he yeah. actually can't. So it's not an option at all. And the question is, okay, where is he flying on his private jet? He's flying to an environmental conference 
to give a very, because he's there, a very well-covered speech about the importance of this stuff to the world. Like, yeah, is it ideal? No, the ideal version would be he rides a a bicycle to to Switzerland or whatever, because then his environmental impact would be zero. But like, you again, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like you would rather have someone with the fame and status and power of Leo DiCaprio engaged in these discussions than not. And if, and if you say as a barrier to entry, sorry, you can't participate in this unless you fly commercial, then what are we doing? Like, it's crazy. All I I heard there was don't let your daughter touch the glass. (laughs) (laughs) There's a thing in the, I write that I write about this in the book about donating to charity and how in in Jewish law um, and Maimonides wrote about this thing where, the only pure donations are anonymous. Like the highest level of, of donation is anonymous because it means in a, in a very Eastern way, in a very Buddhist way that all, all you're doing is it's an act of kindness purely for the act. You're not seeking fame or recognition or compliments or whatever. And, and I actually end up taking a different position. My position is like when, if, if I see uh, a charity I've never heard of got an anonymous donation of $10 million I might think, well, that's great. If I see a charity I've never heard of uh, was given $10 million by Oprah or LeBron James or Tom Hanks or someone who's a worldview I respect and admire, I might be like, well, what the hell is this group of people over that's here? Right. And I might do more research and I might because say like, hey, prime. you know, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a it's prime. But also it's like, I don't think that LeBron James or Tom Hanks or Oprah are making their charitable donations casually. I think they're probably thinking a whole lot about where they put their money. And so their imprimatur on an organization has a lot of meaning for me. And so, and and the attention that it brings is very meaningful. Other people are going to donate because of them. And so, and, and, you know, obviously none of us, very few of us are in that echelon. But if I give $5,000 to a charity that I really believe in, and then my name appears on the donor roll, and I email my friends and say, hey, if you're looking for a charity, I really think this one is good. There are other people at my level in my orbit who might not have known about that charity and who might be inspired to give. Like I think there's, there are times when the when you're doing that calculation where it's like, yeah, I, I guess in the, in the purest Buddhist sense... An anonymous donation is the most mindful, the most meaningful, the most spiritual, the most um, pure. But also donating to charity is just like, this is a numbers game, man. We just need, we need more people giving more money to more places. And so yeah. I think there's tremendous value in the, the attention, the spotlight that Leonardo DiCaprio puts on environmental issues. And if the sacrifice we have to make is that he flies private to those conferences, all right, like, Again, not the best of all possible worlds, but better than nothing. Well, what's difficult is the person that I, again, I'm projecting, I can't know the inner workings of their mind, but the person that was saying that these endeavors, I believe the quote was collapse under the weight of their own bullshit because, (laughs) because people that love the environment fly private. If he's anything like me, and I am seeing myself in him in that moment, I would like a reason to not change what I'm doing. Like I would keep eating uh, what I'm eating, like to keep watching what I'm watching, like to keep, like, I remember listening to the butterfly effect and, and how all porn, did you listen to the butterfly effect podcast? No, it's very interesting. It's worth a listen. It's about how all pornography is stolen. 
I, I, I think this is a really interesting subject. It's like if you go to Pornhub or whatever, the, those websites, all of that content is copywritten and stolen. Right. <laughs> and no one cares because we have this weird puritanical sort of like, but it's it's sex work. But like the directors and the actors and all these people, I've tried to do a bit about it. I, I never put it on stage, but it was like, they deserve, they deserve the money. Right. Like, if the office was a porno, <laughs> like you'd be broke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's insane. Or, or filthy rich. <laughs> or filthy rich. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Depending maybe. on the execution. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of Jim and Pam hardcore out there. I'm oh sure man. Um, but you know, I, I didn't want to go down the easy route of like, why does you know um Steve Carell make millions when a person who's doing difficult, funny sex act here. Right. But I don't want to degrade them more. I don't want to, that's an easy joke to make, but it's true. Like that, that was a, that was a Herculean sex act and you're getting nothing. It's not different. In some ways it's not different from when there were, there were sexual harassment lawsuits filed by sex workers, strip club uh, dancers in various strip clubs. And, And it became a punchline. It became a late night, like, ha, 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 isn't that funny sexual harassment right, at right, a strip right. club? But it's like, hey, j- they don't deserve to be treated inhumanely. Or yes. like, it's not, f- there's no difference between a boss at a strip club saying, do this, have sex with me, or you won't get X, Y, and Z thing at a strip club as opposed to an insurance agency. It's the same right. exact awful, miserable power dynamic. Just because that's their job doesn't mean that they can't be harassed or treated badly within their job. Like, right. we do have these puritanical, um, sniggling kind of like <laughs> attitudes right. about about porn, about sex work, whatever. And th- it's all of that stuff just is belittling and ignores the fact that these are human beings who have an office. It's they all go to other. work. It's yeah, it to- yeah. absolutely is. It? And it's also like, well, they're not real people, so they don't deserve the respect of the, that we would afford to people who work at, at Geico or whatever. And there's billions and billions and billions of dollars being made off of the back of these aren't real people. Right. So it's not just a concept. It's actually no, happening. It's, it's a tangible economic it's, situation. You can <laughs> bank like, yeah. on it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they interview this guy. He's, I don't know, he's in Norway. And he's like, this is my heated floor. It's made of leather. And it's all, he's a thief. Yeah. And the only thing they could do was strike a deal with the thief where they let them steal it, but they give them a little bit. It's, it's like insane. Well, yeah, this is this is part of the problem with ethics in general, right? There are thousands, thousands and millions of examples of people who have decided to flout ethics as a concept and it has paid off. Crime does actually pay for so many people. And the, when you get up to that echelon, you know, like the, the debate about like the Sacklers, the Sackler family who started Purdue Pharma and and, and who um, they, they, you know, the sold, they are, are almost single handedly responsible for the opioid academic, epidemic mm-hmm. in the country. They created Oxycontin. They pushed it like crazy. They lied about it. They then as the walls were closing in, it's, it was not a publicly traded company. It was a private family held company. And they sucked all the money out of the company. They basically paid themselves billions and billions and billions of dollars. They put it into opaque trusts, overseas accounts, all this sort of stuff, filtered it down to their various family members. By the time they were finally convicted in court and the company had to file for bankruptcy, it was like, well, the company doesn't 
really have that much money left in it. Mm-hmm. And they as a family are shielded as individuals from the actions of the company, even though they're essentially one and the same. So they invented OxyContin. They pushed it like crazy. They lied about it. It's been well-documented and well-detailed. They stole all the money from their own company. The company went bankrupt. What do they care? They, they're billionaires. Like, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's bad for them that the Sackler, the, the Met just announced that the Sackler wing of that museum is being renamed. Their, their name is mud. Like, they'll never, they'll never be like welcomed into polite New York society ever again. What do they care? They'll move to wherever they yeah. want. They'll go they'll to build a, a new society. Yeah, they'll build a new planet on uh, on the moon yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so like you, you, you can't, if you're, if you're concerned with the way, that um, if you're trying to think to yourself, like, I should really follow the rules. I should be ethical. I should be a good person. I should be a decent person. What you're faced with every day is examples of people who think the exact opposite and it's totally paid off and they're doing awesome and they have enormous mansions and fancy cars and they live, they do whatever they want and they fly their private jets to other countries to pick up dinner. And so it's, you just have to have the intestinal fortitude to think like, well, I just don't want to be that person. It's the only, the only way through this is like, I just don't want to be like, I don't want people to talk about me the way that they're talking about the Sacklers. And to your point, it's annoying when I was having that conversation and they were like, it's all bullshit. They fly private to their environmental conferences. And I'm like, (sighs) you know what I mean? Like, that's the feel is you're like, and in that case, I didn't go like, well, consider that I was just like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Can I give you one more that I'm very passionate about? And I can never talk. I used to do it on stage. But it, I, the language in it is too hard to use. It's, I was talking about don't drop the soap, which is the biggest example of othering that right. I can think of. Right. And if you'll allow me uh, to say harsh words or whatever, it's like, it's weird that you imprison. The joke that I did was I was like, if you really believe that rape is part of the sentencing, which is the unconscious belief right. that people in prison get raped, but it's okay because they're in prison. Because they're bad people. They're bad people. And I was like, well, then let the judge decide how often, like, because that's part of the punishment. Like, is it everybody the same? Like, really, this is that, like, put the knife to your throat and really follow that thread to its logical conclusion. And if that's part of the punishment and that's why it sucks and that's a deterrent to crime, then shouldn't there be a court? That's like, and even as I'm saying this, I'm like, I don't want anyone to think I'm being too flippant here. But I was like, the fact that someone gets arrested for rape, they're put into prison where they are raped, and then they're released, and they say, go and don't do the thing that we just allowed to happen to you. Is and we're like, why isn't this working? (laughs) And (laughs) also forget about wrongly imprisoned people. Right. Uh, And I go, have you ever had two drinks and driven a car? And everybody would raise their hands. And I go, well, there was a guy who had two drinks, two glasses of wine, but he was, because of the amount of food he had had, he was at a 0.09. And he got T-boned by a drunk driver. His car got sent into a construction site. It must've been a lunch. And he killed a couple construction workers or he killed one construction worker. And he was sent to prison because even though he was sent into the construction site, by a drunk driver, he was also 0.09. Right. So he was a drunk driver and he killed somebody. Um, so I said, how many sexual assaults for us? Like, how many do we deserve? Right. Because anyone here, I've had two glasses of wine. I'm not proud of it. And driven a car. How many assaults for me? But right. it's really hard to talk about because for obvious reasons. What does that make you think of? Uh, 
I'm desperate to see a tape of you trying that bit on stage and seeing how it goes. That is so funny. I did it once yeah. at UCB and somebody who somebody came up to me after the show who worked in prison reform and they were like, they found me and emphatically were like, that bit, that bit. And I haven't done it since because I have to... <laughs> I have to say the word rape so many times. Yeah. And I mean, I don't the, think there's anything funny about it. And it's, and one out of however many women, and I don't want to say that, especially as a white male, a straight white male. And, but like, how do we talk? I guess the podcast is where I talk about it. Yeah. Look, the, the prison system in this country is a, a, in a very screwed up country is probably the most screwed up institutional thing that we have, like down to the point where in the last couple decades, it's actually been privatized. Like people are making money off of how many people go to jail. And then anytime you make money off of something, there is an incentive system to make, to have, to help that system, to make more of more people or passing laws to send more people to the prisons. I mean, it's the idea that we would profit off of an incredibly cruel thing like imprisonment is absurd. The idea that there were three strikes laws where people could sell could have a, a third of a gram of marijuana. And if they had also run a stop sign and they had also whatever, um, you know, stolen a pack of gum, it would say, well, this is a mandatory minimum sentence of 35 years in a maximum security prison. Like, never mind the fact that marijuana is now legal in most states. And that, that like the idea that these people's lives have been ruined by corruption, by by racist police officers, by court systems that have mandatory minimums they have to impose in certain situations it's so awful. It will make you cry. The more you read about it, you will just cry. I, my, what I'm interested in actually in you saying that and trying to deal with it through comedy is some of my favorite comedians of all time used to do prison rape jokes constantly. Norm Macdonald, who I think of as a, as a true comedic genius used to constantly make jokes about that. Mm. And I always wondered like, what is it? Like, I don't think there's anything remotely funny about it. And yet it was like the funniest thing in the world to a certain generation of comedians to say, don't drop the soap or to make a joke where the point was, if you're in prison, you'll be raped. Yeah. It feels obviously not only needlessly cruel, but also deeply homophobic. There's something very, very homophobic and, and dark about it. Um, but I, I just don't know. I think that we're kind of past that point. I think we've been past that point for a while. I don't feel like a lot of comedians are making don't drop the soap jokes anymore. But it also makes you wonder, like, what what in the culture led to that being like a rim shot punchline? Like, yeah. that is such an uh, such an odd place to go. Like, there were so many movies with so much gay panic there. You know, fairly recently, Will Ferrell did it. What was uh, Get Hard? Get hard. Yeah. Was it was I didn't which I didn't see, but it was the entire concept was like, I'm going to prison. I need to be more of a man so that I can ostensibly fight off other people. And I'm yeah. I'm guessing there were multiple jokes in that movie about sexual assault in prison. Yeah. It's just an it's just such an odd place. It's one of the maybe it's there. Maybe it's like a a truly sort of um, almost like puritanical or Catholic, deeply catholic idea of like there there is shame in this like it's shameful yeah. the going to prison is shameful and You've, you're you're a loser i'm not saying you yeah. are a loser i'm saying you didn't get away you yeah know what i mean you got caught you it's the same you, well it's, it's but that's what i mean by puritanical it's also like you did something bad and are being punished and because you did something bad that punishment is justified 
And in fact, we can laugh at that punishment because because we the idea being like 100 percent of the people in prison deserve fully to be in that prison, which is itself an absurd. And then we love cereal and we love Tiger King and we like all of these things where people are being imprisoned and we're like, but wait, uh, it turns out they weren't anywhere near. I don't know. (laughs) You know, and we love that. Well, what about them? Do you think they were in a special prison? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it also goes back to this American sort of Western idea of like of like justice right like justice is a good thing is always a good thing like and justice in a lot of those westerns and a lot of american history means you steal some cattle you're strung up and you're you're publicly hanged or in the old puritanical days it was you're put in the stocks and we're allowed as a society to walk past you and throw tomatoes at your face if you were drunk in public we throw tomatoes at your face and we punch you and we assault you. And that's justice. Like there is a, there is a deeply puritanical strain. And also in hell. This, yeah, of course. If yes. If you don't believe in it, God's going to literally light you on fire, but you'll yes. never burn up. You'll be in hot, that, hot lava on fire. Yeah. That is not consequence free. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Living yes. and telling children and, and having generational belief that God is love and God will burn you if you don't love him, it will lead to people being like, well, if you're in prison, you deserve to be raped. I, I'm just putting that together, that that is a, a, an extension of your belief in hell, I believe. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, do you want to know when I, as a person who, who thinks about religion a lot, cares about religion, do you want to know when I personally was out on, on Western Christianity? Please. Was Abraham and Isaac. I read Abraham and Isaac. Uh, I, we were members of a Unitarian church, which, as you know, is very, very loose, very like, hey, let's just all let's talk. Let's just chat. Let's just get together and chat. That's and if you don't like the word chat, it can be a conversation. <laughs> and if you don't like conversation, how about a chin wag? Like and if you have a problem with chin wag. Let's just groove. Can we groove? Let's just groove. <laughs> so it was already like the, the, you know, New England Unitarianism is very, very gently spiritual and religious. And, and, and I liked going to the church on, on a few times a year. But I read Abraham and Isaac in, in high school and was just like, what the fuck, man? This is like a foundational story, a foundational myth. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, take your favorite son take him up to that mountain. Don't tell him why kill him. And the answer is you got it boss. And that, and then he's about to do it. And then God is like, no, 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 this was a test. And I just want to make sure that you would listen to me. And he's like, okay, great. Thank you so much. And I, I, I just, it's, I found it so chilling and so, um, so cruel that I just had this thought of like, if this is the rule, if these are the rules being laid down, I'm sorry, I can't get on board with this. Like, yeah. I, how did you react to that story when you first read no, it? No, you're absolutely it? right. I think somebody did a bit about it. It was like, he was going to do it. Like, that's an awkward yeah. walk back. <laughs> I mean, the kids saw you with the knife in the air. Mike, please don't think I'm trying to rob you of your... I, what I hear in that story is of you going, I'm out, is um, compassion and and love. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a beautiful thing. So the way that I can still enjoy that tradition, certainly not in its entirety, is somebody explained to me that the Bible itself is like the the trajectory of a life, meaning we're in Genesis now and things are fucked up. It's a lot of like, 
do well exodus is where we get the 10 commandments but it's like do this don't do that it's like in out it's tribal it's it's very like all that right and there's a lot of fucked up shit like that story also cain and abel also uh jacob and esau there's no end to the two people horrible stories yeah uh in the old testament but then it does you have to look at it i'm not telling you to look at it i look at it as a whole and it ends with uh god dying for you like you know right. what i mean it, it it mirrors itself that 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 punchline is more significant because look where we came from you know what yeah I mean? yeah like i think that it's supposed to be fucked up i think right and and also you're not supposed to read it the way i read it which was a little bit here and there jumping around whatever it's it is a it is a guide right it's an entire it's an entire series of stories that are meant to be consumed together. And so picking and choose cherry picking. Oh, I don't like this. I do like this. I don't like that. It can be there. There are good things about that because there's certainly an enormous amount of wisdom to be drawn from it. But it also means that you're not getting that sense of this is an arc. This is a full story about a society. And it's a midrash, you know, that term, I hope uh, as a good, well, you're Jewish, right? But you went to a Unitarian. I'm I'm Jewish only half and by by on my dad's side. So I have so no not at all. Not at all. Zero. The wrong, the wrong half is the way I say it to people. <laughs> well, Midrash, you know, is is what's what's holy is the discussion. So like just like the TV shows that you and I watch, the things that we love are like, well, was that right or was that wrong? Right. I think the confusion comes for people like you and me is because there's the character of God. So God is a character in the story. Right. And God is like, yeah, I wanted you to do that. Psych! Like, <laughs> that's super confusing until you go, no, this is a story that a human being wrote, you know, about God. And they right. might have been fucking like, they, it's not even about right or wrong. They were experiencing that feeling of the patriarchal domineering, you know, uh, yeah, God. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and also like you, you try to, to have empathy for the authors and for the people who's, for, for whom these stories mattered and, and were present for their sort of creation. What you would think is like, look, society, we think of society as chaotic now. Society was a lot more chaotic back then. And so they're desperately trying to codify some rules and some behaviors and some organizations that can give meaning and structure to people's lives, which essentially had no meaning or structure. So yeah, you're going to say like, Hey, there's a, there's a God and he's very powerful and he's very, very concerned with how you behave. You're not going to present a Unitarian view of the yeah. universe to a group of people with no, That's with right. who knew or desperate need of order and structure to come out of the chaos. Yeah. You're going to present a very hierarchical top down world Just that has, like, you know, these lessons that are, that are real and scary. I don't tell Leela like, yeah, you can touch the stove, but it's gotta be off. Like, I'm just <laughs> like, don't touch the stove. Right. Like, that's what I, I liked. I think it was Rob Bell who explained that the, the Bible is like a human life. You start with hard rules and, and fear and, and in-out mentality, and you end. Um, there was something that I, I wrote it down while I was reading your book. It's a Richard Rohr quote. He goes, we don't suffer for our sins. Like, we don't go to hell for our sins. We suffer from our sins, which I thought was, like, very in line with what you were writing in your book. 
Yeah. It's, it's, you're not virtuous for something later. You're virtuous because it makes you flourish. Yeah. I, I mean, I hope that's right. That's the bet I'm personally kind of making. I mean, yeah. I, I, I believe I am not a, a I wouldn't say I'm an atheist personally. Um, I, uh, this is, it sounds so hacky to say this, but I feel like I'm agnostic about religion. I feel like the only reasonable answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe not. But what I, what I do think is important is, and what I think that a lot of the harm of Abrahamic religions and the idea that there's an af- there's a there's a, a good place and a bad place that there's a there's a if you do all the right things you go here and if you don't you go here i think the potential harm that that causes is it makes it feel like the things that we're doing on a day-to-day basis on earth are a little less important and i i think that the focus should always be i, I think the idea that you can for example murder a busload of nuns and then at the very end of your life right as you're about to be executed for your crimes in a in a prison you like can ex- accept <laughs> Jesus into your life and then everything will be fine like yeah. that's uh, there's something beautiful about that idea but there's also something very damaging about it because it might make you think to yourself you know what would be fun is to murder a busload of nuns yeah. and it's okay if i do that cuz i can just I, I have this escape patch that i can get through at the very end and the 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 book, the whole purpose of the book and the whole focus of my personal journey through this stuff has been like, let's just think about today. Let's think about like right now and how we are right now and how everybody else is doing and how we can be better and and just try to like just just improve this here. It's like it's it you know what it is? It's um I've been thinking about this particularly in the weird billionaire space race era that we've somehow entered where <laughs> all of the richest people are like goodbye i'm leaving i'm going to space like they keep talking about mars and the moon and whatever and it's like there's nothing on mars it's a gaseous hot or very cold ball depending on where you are there's no water there's no there's no buildings or roads like what Matt are you Damon doing is not really there <laughs> Yeah, Matt Damon's he, on Earth. He's here now. If you and, want Matt Damon, you stay on Earth. <laughs> I don't understand. What are you? What do you think? And it's just like you're so rich, you're bored. That's all it is. They're bored. They like they, they're done. They have all this stuff on Earth. They've been everywhere. They've done everything. They just want to go to. They they all also kind of want to just be the king of Mars. I think okay. they all are like, what if I were? We could start a new world and I could be the king and maybe women would be brought to me when I demanded them. And so, but I, it's just, there is a, there is a desperate fear that I have that, that too many people will start thinking about Elon Musk's future Mars land. And that it's like, wait, we're here now. We have here a, we have societies and we have water and we have crops and we have we have cities and and trains and all sorts of fun things that that function, and and give life meaning too. We have art and comedy. And yes, we have we have and we have institutions that provide structural support for that art and for that meaning. Like we have nothing. There's nothing there. It's a giant rock and it's <laughs> freezing cold and you can't live outside and there's no atmosphere and and what are we doing? That is you know? such a funny. Not for me. For you. The, a show about they do it they get there and it's like <laughs> what do we fucking do this is what? so boring why did we think this was a good idea 
That's the name of the show. Yeah. Why did we think this was a good idea? It's like you would do it as like it's year seven. Like they've been up there for seven years and it's yeah. no better than there's like they now have like a total of 7000 square feet. They can walk around instead of 3000. And that's like the big improvement. And it's still like if they take they one step outside the airlock, they are immediately murdered yes. by the by the by the freezing cold. Which I have to think is a popular choice. People are just like, oh. I'm going out the airlock. I mean, they you, most people would last it, even if there were like a let's say there were like a football, like an Astrodome or Metrodome sized area mm-hmm. on Mars. Forget it. So many people would go because they'd be like, holy shit, I'm going to live on Mars. And then within one week, they would all commit suicide. They would just yeah. walk out the airlock and just yeah. disappear. I completely agree with that. It, it is heaven. It's another heaven. And they yeah. are another God. You said that they're like God-like and they're king-like. It's another sort yes. of religion. And and what's wrong... Okay, so Richard Rohr, who again, I, I, I love dearly, he's like the mistake that Christianity makes is, is postponing heaven until later. Right. He's saying it's, it's supposed to be here and now. It's supposed to be just like enlightenment, just like nirvana, uh, Shekinah, all of these concepts of you merging with God or, or merging with full potential or the here and now or whatever you want to call it. It's supposed to be now and therefore later too, maybe in a way we don't understand, but it's like, it's now. Yeah. When else? When else yes. It it's supposed to be you and your daughter staring into a mirror and yes. having sharing them, but that's supposed to be what it is. And that and then, I think is. Yep. Yeah. And like that, the, uh, the, uh, one of my favorite things about um, about the concept of Nirvana is like, you know, you're a bug and then you do a good job as a bug and you become a larger bug. And then if you do a good job, you become a lizard and you work your way up, right? You go all the way up the chain, you become a person and in a, in a low caste potentially or, or whatever. And then you work your way up. And if you achieve Nirvana, you become a God and you get to live with the other gods and you get to do whatever you want. And then after a while, you're like, okay, I'm bored. I let's start over. And you start over. Like there is yeah. no concept of eternity. It's just a cycle where it's like, it, it, because you're going to get bored of being a God pretty quickly. Yeah. And then you go back and you're a blade of grass or a bug or whatever. Well, you know and, why there's evidence for that is, is that we're, we're here. If you know what I'm saying, like it's yeah. evidenced by the fact, like if, if you want to use God, God wanted to be separate and God wanted to play all these different games because that's what we're, that's what's happening. (laughs) Yes. A hundred percent. And you have a a situation now where everybody is so entranced by the future. It's all the future. What, what will the world be like? What will the next iPhone be? Will we, will the camera recede into the body of the iPhone next year? Ooh, that's exciting. (laughs) Will Elon Musk get to Mars? Like what will the, Will cars drive themselves? Like everyone is just laser focused on the potential for the future. And as a result, the present is just being, is just miserable for so many people. Like there's so many things that require our attention and effort and study and concentration right now. And we're Mm -hmm. just ignoring them because there's this sense of like, well, maybe everything will turn out okay in 50 years. Maybe the, maybe someone like, maybe someone will solve global warming in the future. Well, we, that won't happen unless we pay attention to it now. Like, yeah, we need to, yeah, yeah. and it, it, that's the, the, the frustrating thing. And I think the thing that philosophy helped me with was refocusing my attention and my energy and my, my, my hopes and dreams, not on some unspoken promise of something in the future, but on like literally today, right now, 
Like I'm about to leave my house. What's the best way for me to leave my house? It, like what my son had a basketball lesson in someone's backyard. And um, I got into the car and I entered the address and I realized it was a block and a half from my, <laughs> from my house. Oh my and God. then, and, but I was like, I'm already in the car and I drove. And then I was like, it would have been slightly better for me to walk because if I'd walked, I wouldn't have used the, um, I have an electric car, but I wouldn't have used the electricity in the car. And then I could have picked my son up and in the block and a half walk back, which would have taken four minutes, I could have talked to my son instead of what will happen, which is what did happen, which is he got into the car and he took out his phone. And he looked at TikTok for the three minutes we were driving home. Like, again, that's not a calamity. It's not the end of the world. It was fine. But I, it would have been a slightly better thing for me, a slightly more mindful thing and a slightly... Yeah, we I, I could have moneyballed that moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's wrap up because I, I don't want to take you away from that son and that family, but, and I'm loving this and I feel like we could talk forever, but, um, <laughs> is this me falling in love with you? I feel like I, we could talk forever. You did bring up that judge Judy thing you wanted to do to me. <laughs> I just have a domineering, small Italian. Is she Italian? Um, <laughs> I, I love that. And that is what I want everybody to take you. I, the image of, I like post-apocalyptic movies because they remind us that it's not the new iPhone that saves us. It's how you look at your current iPhone. It's how you look at this moment. Like yeah. there could be a time hypothetically in a post, like we're, you and I are walking, we're in love and we're walking from <laughs> east to west. We both have swords. We're both, of course, and yeah. we don't cut off heads and we go <laughs> retributive violence is never the answer. <laughs> um, you find a KFC wet nap and it's the most precious thing in the world. I like trying to shift into that here and now. I, I, I think about the structures and everything that we have going on and we're like, how could it ever not be this way? And I'm like, there are mountains that are no longer. You know what I mean? There yeah. are mountains. Look at a mountain and go, there might be a time that that mountain doesn't exist. In fact, I guarantee there will be a time that that mountain yes. doesn't exist. Yes. And yet we think the internet and and you and me and our, our families and Christmas and all this shit. No, motherfucker. This is Christmas. <laughs> yeah. This is the only Christmas. And you are the eyes of the universe experiencing Christmas. Don't waste it and figure out how to keep keep it going with the 4%. I, uh, I'll leave you with this story, which is on theme. Uh, my wife and I, for our honeymoon, we went to, I'd never been to Amsterdam. We went to Amsterdam and we took a train to Paris and, um, oh wait, we went to Bruges too, which is a really cool medieval city on like a canal city. And then we took a train from Bruges to Paris and we were in the, uh, train station in Brussels and, uh, we had like an hour to kill. And, uh, I looked at the board, the like train board and saw that a bunch of trains went through some town in Belgium. I'd never heard of it at a Belgian name. I don't remember what it was. I was like, what the hell is that place? So I get on my phone and I look it up and I read the Wikipedia entry on this random uh, town in, in, in Belgium. And it is the most fascinating thing I've ever read. <laughs> and and which drives me crazy because I can't remember what town it is, but it's like, okay, so this used to be a place where it was like a, you know, a, a, little agricultural outpost where people would trade cows for for wheat or barley or whatever. And then like in the first century, the Romans came through and they were like, is this place worth conquering? Nah, it doesn't look like it. There's nothing really here, but let's build a road, which is what they did. Let's build a road here in case we want to come back and conquer it later. So they built a road and then they leave and they just keep going. 
So then, because there's a road, That's an unsettling feeling. Totally, this is in like case we want to come back and kill imagine you. every time you're walking, you're walking down that road, just thinking like this road is my death. That's what, that's what this is. It's Isaac's <laughs> way. This is a Abraham circle. So then, because there's a road, the town starts to flourish, and it like the population moves in, and their trading increases, and whatever. And then, in like the sixth century. They build a uh, a church, which was like the thing. That's what made a town a town back then, right? They they build a church, and then in like the year seven thirty eight, there's a fire and the cathedral burns to the ground, and then the the uh, French roll through and they conquer it, and then a hundred years later, the English roll through and they kick out the French and they conquer it, and then in the year ten thirty two, they build another cathedral, and everyone's like, yay! And then in ten seventy five, it burns down, and then. <laughs> And the Turks roll through and then the Romans come back and they're like, oh, we should. The Italians are like, we should conquer this place now. It's worth conquering. And they do. And then the English conquer them and then the French conquer them and then the Germans conquer them. They build another cathedral and then the cathedral burns down. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And at some point, the entire it becomes a fishing village because it's on the coast. And then at some point, the entire town goes bankrupt and all the men are like out of work because all the all the fishing and all the trade is gone. And so the women are like, well, we got to do something because the, all the men are just drunk all day. So the women start knitting and sewing and they make they make clothes and they make sails for ships. And suddenly it's like, oh, the best sails and the best uh, for ships and the best clothing comes from this little town in Brussels and or near in Belgium. And they all come through and people start buying it like crazy. And then suddenly all the men stop drinking and they're like, wait, we want a piece of that action. And so then they take over all the businesses and then the town is flourishing and they build a cathedral and then the cathedral burns to the ground. And it just goes on and on and on for hundreds of years, just conquered, reconquered, unconquered cathedrals, burned down, fires, calamities, disease, death, the plague, this, that. It's conquered by eight different countries, 15 or 20 different times. And then I'm then I'm start to realize, you know what? This isn't even Belgium. When the hell did Belgium exist? Belgium wasn't a country for a long time. And it was like, oh, here's the history of Belgium. And like the the thing that it ended up doing to me was thinking like, this is just a place. This is one random place in one random country. The country didn't exist 200 years ago. The town has been burned to the ground and conquered 500 times in the last 2,500 years. And I never knew any of this had happened. And it's utterly in the grand scheme of things, not that important. <laughs> it's not that important. And and the the idea that we like we're we have a an inability to see too far into the future and too far into the past of our own lives. In our own lives, you and me, we were born in the 70s, give or take, the mid to late 70s. And our cultural history began with like the Beatles. And it basically ended when Tom Petty released Wildflowers because <laughs> that's the last time we, now we cared. Have kids. Yes. Now we have kids. But the, when you take this grand view of, the, of history, mountains have risen and been reduced to dust. All of New Orleans and all of Louisiana in, a, in some amount of time in the future is going to be underwater. So, we'll, so Florida will be underwater. Like It's so hard to see all of this stuff. It's so hard to comprehend it because all you know is what you have experienced and what seems solid and, and, and real. But when you really take this like gigantic view of the universe, you start doing the right thing, acting ethically to me doesn't become less important. It becomes more important because you realize how, how transient all of this stuff is and how none of it really matters with a capital M. And so 
on a day-to-day basis, just try to moneyball your life. Just try to make your own life and your own sense of what's right and wrong a tiny bit better. Yeah. That's the, uh, any trying to accomplish anything else really on a grand scheme. If you want to go for it, but what actually matters to me is just these tiny little decisions that make everything around you a tiny bit better. I don't know. It, it was a counterintuitive response. I guess it's because the alternative to reading about that town in Belgium is to throw up your hands and say, well, none of nothing matters. I'm going to just, I'm going to rob banks and murder people and, and like divorce my wife and, and like go cliff diving or something like yeah. that. That is a, there's a nihilistic response that would be understandable. There's an existential dread that could fill your soul and make you give up. But it, to me, it had the opposite effect. It had the effect of saying like, I'm just going to try to control the tiny little thing that I control, which is how I behave on earth, how I treat other people and how I act toward the people who love me. I love it. One last Richard Gore. You, life is not about you. You are about life. And that's what I hear when I hear the story of that cathedral burning down all those <laughs> over and over and over. Like, and all of your dread and existential stuff, a lot of your anxiety is because you think it's about you. Right. And a lot of what the mystic and the spiritual and the philosophical traditions are trying to say, like, this is what's happening. You're a part of it. Right. And, and, you know, I would say it doesn't, it doesn't, it didn't start when Pete was born and it doesn't end when Pete dies. And I, I, I mean, a part of me now we're getting into the soul, but I mean, like, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think I came into the world to quote Alan Watts. I came out of the world right. and I will continue to come out of the world and whether or not my awareness goes along with that or my memory goes along with that is sort of irrelevant because it's not about me anyway. It's, it's about life is, is going to be fine. Right. And consciousness, consciousness <laughs> puts an idea literally in our heads, which is wrong, which is that you are the protagonist in the story that you are the one who matters. And, and the process I think of being a good person is extracting that from your own brain and saying, I'm not the, I don't matter more than anybody else matters. And I should treat other, it's not the golden rule. I think the golden rule is kind of lame because when you say treat other people as you would want them to treat you, it's like, well, we're different though. I don't know how, you don't know how I want to be treated. You're not like the first person to say that. It also yeah. assumes that you know what you need. We're back to the algorithm. Right. So I just <laughs> make right. Hawkeye for you. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to treat you this way. I'm going to make a hundred Marvel shows. That's because that's what I want. And so I'm going to do that for you. Uh, but but it, it's just the the idea that like other people, uh, that, that you're not the star of the show. You're not, not the you. star of the earth. It's not about you that other people deserve the same treatment and the same respect that anyone deserves. And, and that when you, flying, yeah, sorry. well, just Go that ahead. when you, just that when you act, you should remind yourself of that all the time. That like, and that's is, why you walk out of the, the story with the mirrors. And that's why I'm, I still believe a better story would be that Jack Nicholson put his golf clubs away and said, I'm so sorry for the inconvenience. Can I buy you lunch? <laughs> like, that's a better story. And, yeah. and we do have stories like that. Like you hear Ryan Gosling breaking up a fight or whatever it might be. I love when people with power choose 
to to humble themselves. Like, yeah, that, that's a better narrative. Well, it's but it's honestly, it's not even it's it seems like they're humbling themselves because they're so powerful, but they're just being a human being. If yeah. someone says, hey, you're not allowed to do that. And the person says, oh, I'm very sorry, I won't do that anymore. That's not humbling yourself. That's yeah. just obeying just the same rules everybody else has to follow. And so and also, we're shocked and dismayed when it's when it's Tom Hanks or Ryan Gosling or someone like that, but we shouldn't be. Yeah. Our our response should be, well, what else should he have done? That's exactly the right response. Like that's a better mythology. I, I yeah. love that so much. Also, show me your millions. Jack Nicholson in that story has millions. Point a gun at him and be like, "Where's your millions?" You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I think. Sorry, one last theory is that one of the reasons we love violence in movies is because it's the great, it's the ultimate reminder of like, we're all sort of playing the same game. We're all living on the knife's edge of annihilation or, or, or death or whatever you want to call it. And like the idea of Jack Nicholson's power or money is just a concept. It's like Fort Knox. It's, it's just the concept that gold is more valuable than aluminum. Right. It's, it's nothing. It's right. nothing. This is why I'm always drawn again and again, back to the concept of, something that really is worthy of, of my, of whatever, of, of, of a God, of, of a thing. Because I'm like, really, at the end of the day, we're all just wearing different outfits and going, <laughs> I'm a fancy boy. And it only works because a million people go, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're a fancy boy. And then sometimes you just go, this is all nonsense. What's real? Life is real. Let's just call it life. Something wants to be and continues to be. And we are a part of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, Mike, thank you so much. I, I clearly could have talked to you for a million years. The book Let's is called how, how to be perfect, right? How, how to be perfect. It's out on January 25th available for sale. Whenever you're hearing this from, a, uh, all of your favorite bookstores. It's a great, great title. And ethically you should buy it from a small books distributor. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, and all the, uh, for the record, all of the, every dollar I make is going to charity. That's the oh, other wow. thing. So you can buy it knowing that, um, you are, you are in some way contributing to, um, it's going to do my, the guy, the philosopher Todd May, who, who helped me with it. We picked five charities. Um, we've already, we made the first three payments already to, we divided it up and then the other two will come in sometime next year. And, but we, I felt like it was weird to write a book about how to be a better person and then be like, uh, I can't wait for the checks to roll. In. <laughs> that is so, so yeah. Funny. So it's all, it's a hundred percent of every dollar I make uh, forever. will go to, we'll go to charity. So you can at least know that uh, Paul Newman's blue cheese dressing over yeah, there. It, it's, you're not the first person to bring up Paul Newman and it really does. It really is a, an amazing thing he did it back is, then. Cause it, it was is. every, he made, I mean, I'm sure that that was, a lot more money than, than I'm going to make from this book. <laughs> You're not the sting. The book isn't the sting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. Um, or, or delicious salad dressing. Why am I so defensive today? Look, they are delicious salad dressings. I'm not defaming them. Um, thank you so much. The compliment is your assistant or somebody on your team was like, do you want the PDF or the book? And I was like, send me the PDF you know, hosting a show like this, you get a lot of books and you feel bad sure. about not reading them. I am absolutely going to be like, please send me the book because I can't wait oh, to read the whole thing. Very kind of you. No reason to say that if it wasn't true, but strangely, it's not true. All <laughs> top cocktail. <laughs> I was the joker the whole time. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you're incredible. I appreciate it. We have the guests say the catchphrase. It's, it's, it's a way of you being a co-creator of the episode. Mm. It's keep it crispy. You say it, not me. Do you, if you want to say it, it's your choice. 
keep it crispy. Very good. How would Moe's say it? He wouldn't. He, he well, I'll tell you what would happen. He would, the writers would write it in and then he would say it. And then the writers would go like, it's actually funnier when you don't talk. And then yeah. they would cut it. That's right. <laughs> so there is all of my somewhere at Moe's talking, but it's, there, he, it's, ta- he talked a couple times in a very hesitant, quiet tone, but yeah. mostly every line that I said was cut, which is a great for your ego. If you're ever, <laughs> if you're ever like when people say like, you know what? It's way funnier when we can't hear you. <laughs> I'm not complaining. I was in the secret life of pets too, as a voice. And there, I, I, I recorded quite a few lines and then in the movie again, thank you for the job. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. I'm not complaining. Val and I went to the premiere and my character speaks so little <laughs> and it's noticeable that there are moments when like he communicates non-verbally. <laughs> <laughs> like someone says hello to him and he could say hello. He just In nods. Fact, you kind of feel like he should say hello. <laughs> <laughs> and he waves. Yeah. He nods. He gives a thumbs up. I'm like, <laughs> wow, I know they have audio of me saying hello. <laughs> Have you ever heard, uh, sorry, I know we're supposed to be wrapping up, but have you ever heard the maybe apocryphal story about Adrian Brody in the movie, The Thin Red Line? Have you ever heard no, this? No. So that Terrence Malick movie, it's an incredible movie uh, about the war, the end of World War II in the, in the uh, Eastern theater operations. And it's got an enormous cast. It's Sean I'll Penn. i that when I'm done with The Witcher. <laughs> <laughs> It's like Sean Penn and and uh, Nick Nolte and Jim Caviezel and uh, George Clooney, I think, is in it. Uh, like just a, a massive, massive cast of people. And and um, Adrian Brody was in it. And this is the story I heard. And I will preface this by saying I have no idea whether this is true at all. It could be completely apocryphal. It could not have anything to do with Adrian Brody at all. It could not have happened to anyone. But the story I heard was that he, you know, Terrence Malick is a kind of a lunatic film director. He shoots millions of hours of footage and the this the cameras oh no one can ever predict where he's going to put the cameras or move them or whatever and this is a sprawling massive movie and um adrian brody says yes because he um worships terrence malick and is so excited to be in this movie and they shoot you know it's supposed to be a four-month shoot it ends up being a two years of shooting and whatever blah 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 goes on and on he's in editing for five years and and then they finally have the premiere and Adrian Brody is so happy and uh, to be a part of this movie. It's a crowning achievement in his uh, flourishing career. And he like, brings all of these people who matter to the film and they watch the movie and he's essentially been cut out of the entire thing that oh <laughs> he's God. like in it for like, you know, 20 seconds or whatever. But they, but just in the process of making it with the 500 different little threads and stories going on. Yeah, I mean, it, I, it's awful. Just awful. If that's true, I again, I have no idea. I'm just wildly accusing look, people of having done things. If we ever get Adrian Brody, that would be pretty, pretty high, big get for me. I'll, I'll ask him and I'll let yeah, you know. ask him. Let maybe I, I, I feel bad for everyone because it's also a great movie. Like yeah. if that happened, whether to him or anyone, I would feel sorry because it's a wonderful movie, beautiful, incredibly moving movie. And the idea that you would put so much work into anything. I but again, you know, it's you're not the protagonist, right? What's the- weird is, oh yeah, <laughs> sorry, I was doing good. <laughs> What's weird is on the DVD, Adrian Brody does the commentary. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, God damn it. <laughs> I'm just cursing. You can hear him eating. Like he's just eating. Oh, Sean, oh no, Sean him. Penn's much better than I am. No, as an actor, <laughs> yo, it's definitely put him in this more. What fun. Okay, go buy How to Be Perfect. And thank you, Mike. What a pleasure. 
Thank you. Uh, keep it crispy again. I'll say it again. Keep it That's crispy. That's better. That's better. You are. <laughs> you might be an Enneagram one. You like. You like following the rules. I love it.